sitting in my office with a plate of grilled bacon. Call a man flat just to see what was shaking. Yo, Mike, our town is dope and pretty. So check out how we live. In the Electric City. They call it Scranton. What? The Electric City. Scranton. What? The Electric City. Lazy Scranton, the Electric City. They call it that because of the electricity. The city's laid out from east to west, and a public parks and libraries are truly the best. Call poison control if you're bit by a spider. But check that it's covered by your health care provider. Plenty of space in the parking lot. But the little cars go in the compact spot. Spot, spot. sort of synchronicity that you can't really ignore and you can't really explain away. You could say it's an extreme coincidence, but it really falls at the far end of extreme coincidences. There's no, there shouldn't be any chance that this had happened. Okay, guys, welcome back to this week's episode of the Grimerica Show. We are going to be chatting with Mr. Laird Scranton himself a little bit later. It's uh, kind of surprising. That's another one that's kind of surprising. It took us a year and a half to get around to. And now all of a sudden we'll have him on twice inside a month. Uh, but this time we gave him a proper uh, a proper interview instead of in the vendor room at the Paradigm Symposium. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, but first, as always, the uh, ghastly ground unlock. Ghastly? I was trying to make because you look sick. Sickly. Oh, thanks. What's what a G f- word? Why, why, a, do, why do I look sick? What's a G word for sickly? Never you mind. That reminds me. People, if you want to spam Darren, I will accept um, emails to darrenacromerica.com uh, for G words to describe Graham. Oh, come on, buddy. So you can send me your suggestions. Anything's better than ghastly. I mean, I know I'm not feeling that well, but I don't look that sick, do I? Foolish. You look a little pale. Really? You look a little pale over there. <sighs> Maybe we need some spam. You want to eat some spam? <laughs> right now? You want to? I could I'm already you know. sick. I might as well. Yeah, now's the time. <laughs> I'm full from dinner, but you could eat some. <clears throat> no, <laughs> I'm not going to do it without you. Harold says, uh, Harold from Florida says uh, hi to the, from the Great White North, and he says uh, he thinks that we might be scared of canned meat up here in the North. So maybe we should just prove him wrong. He said, you don't have to eat it on the show. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Let's do it. Why don't you pause it and go get some crackers, and we'll do it right now. I don't have any crackers. Oh, come on. we got to have some. See, it. I figure that there's a, you're less likely to get yourself into trouble with the fear of canned meats than you are with absence of any fear of canned meats. I think if you, the guy who jumps... Absinthe? Absence. Oh, absence. So I'd say the guy who jumps into all canned meats head first all the time gets sick more often than the guy who doesn't eat canned meats goes hungry. He says, you don't have to eat the spam. I just sent it for a spam joke. <laughs> just set it on your desk. He doesn't think it goes bad at all. And he says, it just shows the fans that you have two... To, what? Just shows the fans you two have in the world. You two do a great job every week. Thanks, Harold. 
Thunderstruck in Florida. Darren just... Oh. It's salty. Very <laughs> it's salty? That's what she said. I just stuck my <laughs> finger in there. Oh, man, you got to have a, a utensil. Or a drink wow. would be great, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, it smells... Uh, it smells pretty good. Actually, you know what? It's not... I don't think it's as bad as I think. I thought. I thought it was pretty good. I would probably taste... <laughs> No, it's actually pretty good. That would probably taste pretty good fried up in a pan. Cut that up into slices, fry it in a pan. How about, like Charity said, with uh, brown beans and cheese on top in the oven? What? Yeah. Not bad, People though. are starting to send us the ways they cook spam or eat spam. Oh, did they? You, didn't you don't have them. to cook it. <laughs> you could just eat it out of the can. You can just eat it out of the can, right? It's actually pretty good. It's just really salty. Can you eat it without cooking it? I didn't even check. Yeah, of course it's cooked. Okay. That would be <laughs> shitty. Yeah. <laughs> we both call it <laughs> tomorrow because we had spam on the show. People are listening. They're like, Raw spam. you idiots aren't cooking it. <laughs> yeah, I don't see. Yeah, I don't think it has a spoon. We should have just got a spoon. That would have been easier than dipping our fingers in it. Pork with ham, salt, and water. Yeah, no, you know what? I expected it to be more uh, uh, prepared. Like a hot dog, but ham. Like a pork, like a piggy hot dog. Do you know what I mean? Darren's eating more. No, it's actually pretty good. I'm pleasantly surprised. You can send us your spam any day. Oh. Yeah, thanks, uh, Harold. Excuse us while we finish licking our fingers. So that wasn't so bad. I'd have some more of that. Yeah, I'm going to take it home with me. Eat it later? <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Well, thank, who was that? That was Howard. I actually have crackers at home, so I might just put it on some crackers. I would try, like, like taking it out in the cube. I think if you, like, held it upside down, it's going to slop out of that can in a cube. Cut it into little slices and fry them. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Little just sliders. A little, yeah. Little butter in a frying pan, kind of. Yeah, like little sliders. Yeah, that's good. I don't think you even need any butter. Those things are greasy as fuck. That shit's greasy as fuck. Can I, uh, can I continue? Is that Howard in Florida, though? We got to yeah, thank yeah. for the, so yeah. he just fed us. Thanks yeah. for dinner, Howard. Thanks. Thanks for after dinner After snack. dinner, that's like dessert. Yeah. Spam dessert. Can I continue on with some feedback while we're talking about feedback? Oh, sure. So I got some feedback, uh, fascinating and entertaining, and it's from Frugal Brutal on iTunes. I think it's on iTunes, eh? This is the one you sent me. Started listening after the show produced an episode of NA, which is no agenda. So glad I'm listening to the producer segments of that podcast. Anyways, I'm not into the paranormal, but this show keeps impressing. The guests are fascinating, but the icing on the cake are the hosts. Darren and Graham make a great pair. They ask great questions, but know when to let a guest speak uninterrupted. Their chemistry is great. With their personalities and differences playing off of each other, it makes me laugh out loud. For being a newer show, I find production top notch as well. Five stars all the way. So thanks, Frugal Brutal. It uh, actually makes me uh, feel humbled that uh, people notice uh, that we try and let let the guests uh, speak and not uh, continue interrupting and all that. I know that was a pet peeve of mine, listening to podcasts years ago, and you could tell that the the hosts weren't really into it. They were just like asking questions and not really engaged. Graham has a pet peeve. Did I say Imagine pet peeve? Imagine that. Did I say pet peeve? You yeah, it was that. a bit of a pet peeve. You have a lot of pet peeves, I find. What? Yeah. 
you anyway. Well, maybe we should just. That's good feedback, though. Yeah, it's fucking awesome feedback. I think I hold out the team a little bit sometimes. But... You're kidding me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we got some good Twitter feedback. Um, Pato tweeted us, said he'd. Uh, he'd oh, you're not going to say it on Okay, air, I won't say yeah? that. I won't say what Pato volunteered to do, <laughs> but. It's pretty cool. Well, I mean, just in case, right? Yeah, just in case. We might take him up on that. Um, what was the other one? I, well, I'm just scrolling through my Twitter here. Bear with me. Oh, did you see that article I sent you? Someone tweeted us the thing uh, about John of God. Yeah. Making 20 million a year. Oh, you said it was 10 last time I talked to you. No, then I I, I went to the source article and read it. And uh, it's 20? Yeah, or well, 20, doing well, eh? 20 plus. He's doing well. That's good business, that healing. Yeah, it seems. seems. Yeah, at um, least he's healing people while he's making $20 million. Not like, you know, actors and sports players. Not at 100%, though. Of course not 100%. Oh, my God. So, you, so how much of that $20 million went to people who didn't get healed? I don't know. That's 18, a... 19, <laughs> 19 and a half. I don't know. That'd be pretty hard to measure. Actually, no. I think it'd be pretty easy. Yeah, anyway, easy for you to anytime I see millions of dollars come into play, I fucking f all sorts of flags fly up for me, personally. When millions and millions of dollars come into play, I didn't realize when when I first heard about him talking with Margaret, I assumed he was you know like a shaman kind of dude in right, the fucking right. jungle or in a temple healing people and. Yeah. Uh, rolling around in Benzes. No, I seen him in Oprah before, like wait, years and years ago. So I figured I knew what what he was all about. I still don't deny that that he could be healing people, though. I mean, I, so I don't I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater on that one. The funny thing is, the Korean spiritual healer I took my dad to, and who we've had friends heal their back issues and shit like that. This is back in Maple Ridge. He wouldn't charge a thing. He basically like donate, didn't charge anything, and he actually performed some pretty pretty crazy miracles and it, people just couldn't they did he, he couldn't fly he did, didn't make it fly he was like why don't people why aren't people open to this here like he moved to canada from korea and he just couldn't understand why people were basically resistant to the whole thing yeah i, I don't even say it has to be free <clears throat> but there should be a threshold you know what i mean like maybe a quarter million a year that guy's make it you know well yeah. who knows what he's doing with it maybe he's giving back like 90 percent of it Possibly, possibly. Yeah. yeah, that's another. Yeah, you know. Thing. But well, the skeptics are never gonna ever ever buy any of this this uh, this crap, well, no matter I'll give what you kind that of evidence. For homework, is, so. you can tell me what John of God's doing with his money. I don't care what he's doing with his money, really. You, you could though. If I he's could just care. Blowing it. What? Fuckers and blow fucking <laughs> casinos. <laughs> anyway, I did want to give a shout out to Graham Gainsford. Uh, I don't think he found the show too long ago, but he's another one who's taken it upon himself to uh, trudge through the entire library. So I think he, he messaged today and said uh, he's catching up fast, sort of, 77 to go. Is that, like, did we, have we done that many? I think we're at around 90. Really? Yeah, we're, if we're either at or close to 90. That's crazy. Oh, yeah, that's that crazy. Is so crazy. is he one of the YouTube guys? Because if people, we know a lot of people. I don't people know. Are yeah, he to, could have been a YouTube guy. A lot of people know. are starting to listen on YouTube, and 
People if, find us through YouTube now for sure. Yeah. So we want to say hi to all the YouTubers and all the trolls along with all the YouTubers. That seems to be where all the trolls hang out. No, well, lately it's been all good YouTube feedback. So, But uh, but we do want to say you can also listen via podcast on your portable device, right? Yeah. And on the website. And, and even stuff. if you listen on YouTube, you can still review the show. Right. You might have to have iTunes to review it on iTunes. But there's always some place to review it. I know some people listen on Stitcher. I don't even know if we have any reviews on Stitcher, but... Anywho, all that shit helps. Uh, you can support the show, grimerica.ca slash moneybomb. That's uh, where we do our 50-50 thing. Uh, no donation needed entries in there. Um, of course, Justin threw his hat in the pot again. All his winnings from last month, so we're off to a good start. And we haven't got a new subscriber in a while, so... We can yeah, and if you do subscribe, Darren will give you an email address at grimerica.com. So that's always fun. We've got quite a few people with Great America email addresses. Yeah, I think we got to like almost 15 or 16. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So uh, keep them coming. Uh, only 100 to go. So let's see if we can give them all out by Christmas. Wouldn't that be a challenge? By before, no, 100 episodes. Well, 100 episodes will probably line up right around Christmas. But we want to stick with this value for value model where everything is free, no ads, no... Uh, no, what else was I going to say? No ads. I no. wouldn't took the Amazon portals down. Oh, I thought so. I went to use it the other day and it was gone. <laughs> yeah, I took them down. So we're completely fucking, we don't have an ad, nothing on yeah, that. Yeah. So yeah, no gimmicks, no promotions, nothing like that. Just, uh, well, I mean, we promote like inner traditions because we chat with their authors and stuff like that, but it doesn't really go much past that, right? No. No agenda. No agenda. So support the show because it does cost money, especially now with uh, you know new website and and uh, the bandwidth and all that crap. It does cost so. Yeah, and if you can't support the show, then review the show, and that is supporting the show. Or tell a friend. And that is true. I think we still have a bunch of uh, large T-shirts left. Yeah. You anyway. So uh, we are still going forward yeah, with our uh, twenty-five dollar donation or more. We'll get you a T-shirt. You just send us your address or type your address into the PayPal section there, and we'll send you a T-shirt. Uh, all we have is larges right now. But one small. One oh, small. One small and a bunch of larges. So who knows, though? Maybe if we can plug through those real quick, then we might be able to you know, get another batch and kind of keep that going. That'd yeah, be, a, that'd be you... a cool way to sell the shirts for now, too, is just donation based. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because those, those shirts are pretty cool. Um, uh, how do the people see the picture of the shirt? I don't know. I should what? put one up on the website. Oh, you tweeted it before? Is that how? Yeah, out? there's one in the Twitter feed someplace. Maybe and there's put, probably one on the Facebook page someplace. Maybe we'll add it to the Money Bomb page because it's kind of oh, like yeah, a donation-based we thing. thing going, so. We'll throw one on the bottom of the Money Bomb page. Yeah, that's a good idea. All right. Good idea. Can I tell you about a synchronicity sort of from and some feedback from somebody? Sure. Okay, Absolutely. I hope she's okay with uh, us reading it on the air. I'm sure she would be, or otherwise she would have said so. Anyways, uh, Marilla Calderon, she's writing from Toronto. Thanks for the feedback. And she says, uh, I would like to take this opportunity to say you guys have a great show, and I'm particularly proud that a mutual friend, Efrain Palermo, was your first guest on the show. When I listened to the podcast, I told Efrain that it sounded like three guys sitting on a couch drinking beer and shooting the shit. I'm a good friend of Efrain, and I wanted to share a synchronicity that I experienced a few weeks ago. I was at a basketball game with a client, and rather than the usual business talk, as most do, I sparked up a conversation about UFOs, ETs, and I brought up Efrain's Alien Cartel book. 
I like to plug it whenever I can. And the client happened to mention your show, Grammarica, and told me that he listens to your show from time to time. I almost spilled my wine, and I rarely do that. <laughs> Coincidence? Not sure. I call it a connection of the souls, you know, a mysterious force of some kind. I say this because there have been quite a few coincidences with Ephraim, and I sadly have never had the opportunity to meet him, so it makes it even more mysterious to me. Anyways, thought I would share this with you guys and maybe possibly hearing a podcast regarding synchronicities. Looking forward to future podcasts. Keep on trucking, Marilla. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, I look, if, if we were like, let's say, a level of Mysterious Universe or something like that, it wouldn't be such a, a coincidence, right? But really, to have her bump into somebody in Toronto that's listened to the show? I thought everybody listened to Grammar. <laughs> Not yet. At least 150 people, though. In Toronto? No, I don't know about that. Maybe fucking no, not 150 people. So in I Toronto, mean, that's a pretty that's pretty crazy, don't you think? I would say in Toronto, there's maybe a hundred, or not even in Toronto, there's maybe 50 tops. No, I don't know. Ontario is a big, yeah. It's a center. Not a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh not a lot. Give uh, me a rating. Mm, fuck. I'll give it a 8.42. No, 7.92. Seven, really? Seven, wow. And if it was me? Six. <laughs> 6. 6.42, because it involves a show. Well, it's time for the Graham's Profound UFO Quote of the Week. I'm trying to catch me off guard, as Darren, as usual. I've got two little ones for you, Darren. How the many most... times have you had to say that in your life? <laughs> it's not about the size. It's about how you use them. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the most spectacular UFO incident in Indonesia occurred when during the height of President Sukarno's confrontation in Malaysia, UFOs penetrated a well-defended area in Java for two weeks at a stretch, and each time were welcomed with perhaps the heaviest anti-aircraft barrage in history. That was from Air Commodore J. Salutan, National Aerospace Council of Indonesia, and a member of the Indonesia Parliament in 1967. Any comments, buddy? No? Did you even hear that? Yeah, I thought you Okay, the other one. And don't tell me they were reflections. I know they were solid objects. That was Lieutenant D.A. Swimley, U.S. Air Force in 1953, following the sighting of eight UFOs that were confirmed on radar. 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 <laughs> radar. What's it spelled? How's it spelled? It's spelled right. How's what's right? R-A-D-A-R. Okay. Yeah. And witnessed numerous other people and witnessed numerous other people, including commercial pilots and police officers. I wonder what DA is short for. Lieutenant DA Swimley. I don't know. Huh, those are not bad. The first one, for a second there, I thought you were yelling at me. Why? Because I... you had so much passion when you started that, well, I'm, that yeah, second I'm one. Yeah, trying to be passionate. Apparently, you're supposed to speak like a kid, you know, with the... Because otherwise, you're just deadpan. And, That's you know, when you're telling a story, yeah. Right. Deadpan Graham. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I should write that down. <laughs> Deadpan Graham Dunlop. 
So, you got any more, uh, anything else in your bag of tricks we need to get to? Uh, well, no, I just want to say we got a lot of, uh, we're booked solid for the next month, pretty much. We've got uh, Robert Sullivan coming back in Gramerica with Cinema Symbolism. And Paul Elder, who runs uh, the Monroe Institute Canada, basically the uh, institution on Vancouver Island, and he's a remote viewing teacher. Ooh, uh, that'll be a fun one. Yeah, you wanted to do that, right? For yeah, a while I like now. Remote, remote viewing. Yeah, shit. he's a great guy, too. He wrote a book called Eyes of an Angel. My sister and I were reading that. Or she was reading it right after I read it. That's yeah, pretty, uh, a little bit of a synchronous moment there. No. And uh, we also have Robert Wagner coming up on December 2nd, Lucid Dreaming expert. Ooh, be a fun one, too. Yeah, I've been trying uh, Lucid. Uh, I've been I've been back in the Lucid, trying to be Lucid. You should see if you <laughs> um, can... Uh... And I've been trying this Monroe uh, Institute. Speaking of Monroe Institute, they've got a Lucid Dreaming series, so it's a DVD with four sections on it. And you, it's basically like a 90-minute thing, and it takes you through this relaxation technique. And then it goes into, uh, at the end, it says... Or dreaming at the end, so you basically trigger uh, the lucidity. Nice. Yeah, you don't even care. I care. I like the lucid dreaming one. I'll try you, you don't even remember your dreams, do you? No. Do you want to try? Once why don't you start trying to lucid dream before we have Robert Wagner on? But I just gonna start trying that shit. Yeah. Oh. Just start. Well, you got to pretend in your day to day life that you're. You have to do these exercises that say, am I dreaming? And you go through doorways and you go, am I dreaming? And you try light switches and stuff because in the dreams, the light switches don't work. Or if you read something on paper in your dream, you can't read it. So can I just do that like in the morning? No, it's a daily, like you have to practice this every day. Why? So it becomes habit? Because, so I'm going to so look like the fucking weirdo going around flicking light switches. And... Yeah. Am I dreaming? Am I dreaming? If you keep asking yourself that, then when you're in your dream, you'll ask yourself, am I dreaming? And know. then you go, I am dreaming. And then you become aware in your dream and you can control it, fly, have sex, drive fast, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you look pretty excited <laughs> over there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That sounds like a lot of work. It is. It is. Can I just like drink some lucid dreaming tea? Actually, there. I think there is some. Some tea that would be more, dream. Up, more up my alley. I don't think it actually helps you become lucid because that's that's something that's more um, practice kind of thing. But it might help you dream more intensely. I'd like to do a past life thing too. Do you want it? Why don't you come with me to a past life thing? I got. To, I can go to one of those I anytime. I got my Reiki teacher does that. Really? Yeah. Huh. Not like a shaman or something. Isn't that like a hypnotic thing or? Well, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'd like to try one of those. I wouldn't mind doing like a kids' past life episode. Just see if you track someone down. I, I remember, fuck, I forget who it was, but I was trying oh, to get mean, a hold Oh, you mean? Oh, you're talking someone. about on on here? Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant in real life. Well, I'd still go. I'd go in real life. Okay. Do a past life regression. Okay. Hopefully, nothing crazy comes up. Yeah, we should. What, what do you mean? It's all healing, man. The more you recognize about your past life, the more you used can to be heal. Stalin. Then you're then you'll understand why you have some of the habits you do right now. <laughs> <laughs> What's that supposed to mean? You're comparing me to Stalin no, because you that'd just, be pretty you just said I it. did not say that. I said you. Oh me, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. No, well that's something to try out. I'd be down with that. But yeah, I wouldn't mind like a past life kids like fuck him, you had a guy on not long ago. Oh, about the kids? Back. Oh, yeah, yeah I know what you're talking about. Kids that remember yeah, past yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some crazy stories. Like, 
again, you get into the amount of evidence. If it was just one or two things, uh, you'd think, oh, okay, like it's a coincidence or something, or there's some sort of reason. But the amount of stories and anecdotal evidence there is, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, my kids say some crazy things sometimes, some pretty profound things that make you just, for being a little kid. You got any examples? No, not right now. Not right now? No, uh, this episode is going to be long enough. I think we were over, a little over two hours with Laird. We've been rambling on here for over 20 minutes, I think. All right, let's shut her down then. Let's shut her the fuck down. For those people who don't like me swearing. Um, you got anything else to say? Uh, Laird's grand. The, the Laird's, the Laird, fuck, I can't get enough of the bastard. See, I was a huge Office fan. So, and the Office is based in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Oh. The so Laird Scranton. You know, anyway, it was a fun one. That's for sure. We got right into it talking about language and he's a language expert, I think, right? That's his. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Among other things. I mean, he's one of those guys you can talk to anything about. It was quite mind blowing. So yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those ones I knew it would be good, but I didn't realize, uh, how interesting it would be and how much we could learn. Yep. And he's a, uh, inner traditions author as well and you know how well we get along with the folks over there uh so it worked out great uh so i think that's about it we ate some uh fucking oh look at that we just got a five dollar donation from adam thanks adam thanks adam just we, we ate, ate some, some spam. fucking spam we read some spam we talked about some shit did a UFO quote. Sign up for the newsletter, grammarica.ca. Why, why are you repeating what we just did? Did we do the newsletter? No, we didn't. Well, then, fuck. And a voicemail. Oh, there's a voicemail. The voicemail. A voicemail. No one's ever left. Oh, yeah, Justin left us a voicemail. Is that who that was? Justin and someone else. Con. Remember Con left us a voicemail? The first day we set it up, we got a voicemail. And then we got one more oh, voicemail right, right. when we are in Paradigm Symposium from Justin. And no, so there's one One just came, came, came in. You didn't know about it? No. no. it came to our feedback. Did it? Yeah. No, I think that's spam. Oh, you think so? That's real unless spam? It's speak, unless it's voice from, message? Yeah, it should be from SpeakPipe. SpeakPipe? SpeakPipe. Why are you making a jerking off motion in front of your face <laughs> when you say that? Because that's pretty fucked I up. didn't do that. <laughs> you did like this. No, I didn't. <laughs> just said throw. Like, you just did it again. You just did it again. Oh... Oh, if we had video. <laughs> you caught yourself doing it that time. <laughs> and now you got these weird, fucked up emotions. Anyway, that's a good note to end it on. How does it go? Show me again. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, guys. Enjoy the uh, chat with Laird Scranton.
Okay, guys, in Grand America tonight, uh, with uh, much, much to the uh, delight of our audience, we've gotten multiple emails and uh, Facebook messages asking us to get uh, Laird Scranton on, so we're looking forward to this one. Of course, we chatted with him a little bit at Paradigm, but uh, not nearly, we couldn't nearly get in, in depth as we'd like to. Uh, but first, as always, the great Graham Dunlop. How's it going tonight, buddy? Hey, buddy. I'm I'm doing good. I'm excited to have Laird back on the show. We we uh, chatted him at Paradigm with with him at Paradigm for a bit there. Uh, Laird's one of these guys you can talk to about anything. You know, cosmology, ancient mysteries, ancient language and symbolism, the Dogon and Velikovsky. He's written all these books. Uh, super open-minded and smart guy. Been really looking forward to chatting with him about this. So some of his books he's had out is. Uh, the Velikovsky Heresies, uh, the Do science of the Dogon, and his latest one. Where do I have that one? It's China, and uh, the cosmological prehistory. And he's got a couple more coming out, which I'm really anxious to talk to him about. Um, so, welcome to the show, Willard. Hey, thank you very much. I'm, it's my pleasure to be here. How was uh, the CPAC conference? CPAC was. Um, it was actually a very interesting conference, but a little more sedate and corporate than Paradigm is. Paradigm is sort of a controlled stumble. Uh, CPAC is uh, put on more like a, an IBM corporate conference. Uh, uh, very interesting presenters. It was a little bit shorter a, a conference. It was only two-day rather than three-day. Um, but uh, very interesting attendees. Uh, it was a pleasure to be there also. Yeah, that's one thing I forgot to mention in, in the little intro there is that you've presented, I think, at, at Paradigm all three years now, right? And then you've also done uh, those CPAC conferences. Well, o over the years, uh, since 2006, I presented at, uh, at uh, CPAC. Uh, I made presentations uh, to the ARE down at their Mysteries Conference in Virginia Beach and at Paradigm for the last three years. Yeah, that's so, great. little bit by little bit, you know. <laughs> do, you, do you prefer one format over the other? Uh, no, not not really. Uh, the pre the the presentations at the conferences are fun because you know normally guys like like myself are sort of down in our little um, our little canyons, you know, our little ruts here, uh, working on our things. And the conferences give us a chance to sort of poke our heads up and and see that there's a world out there and actually communicate with people who have interesting ideas and get to know some of the other other authors. And it's uh, it's a lot of fun to spend a weekend that way. Hmm, that's great. Can you give us a tease of? Uh of what you got coming up. I know we talked to you at Paradigm a little bit, and you mentioned uh, what you were presenting on there, but you've also got books uh, underway, too, that are going to be coming out soon, right? Uh, that's right. Um, let's see. I have a, a, a note here, just as an aside, from my, my wife, Risa, saying that uh, she's logged into your um, your site. She can hear you guys, but she can't hear me. Oh, so that's, a good, that's some good feedback there. Okay, we'll figure that out. Okay. Um so, uh, but I do have some uh, interesting uh, new books uh, on the horizon here. Um, I just finished up the book on China, which has been out for about a month. Um, I have another book due out at the end of February or first first part of March called Point of Origin, which I'm really excited about. Um, that book um, sort of ties together the various traditions from Africa and Egypt and India and China and Tibet that I've studied and links them all to a common source. Um, back in archaic times. And oh, then I have a, bo a book, uh, just a manuscript just about finished in my, um, in my computer that is, um, actually deals with uh, Great Britain and Scotland and sort of ties those traditions into the same set of, of, of creation symbols and myths. 
So I'm excited about that one too. Yeah, that's I, I liked uh, the first one you were talking about there because it it's still not clear in my mind what happened uh, back then and how all the all the uh, I don't want to say races necessarily, but all the cultures kind of evolved from was it one one spot in Africa or that it seems to be sort of still mixed up. Yes, it it still is um, a, a little bit mixed up as and it, it's very tricky trying to to pin it down because it date ba- dates back so far. You know, writing didn't begin until around three thousand BC, but these traditions are understood by you know traditional researchers to have preceded writing. And uh, from my perspective, it goes back as far as about ten thousand BC, which is the era where I don't know if you're familiar with Gobekli Tepe. The, yeah. the megalithic site in Turkey. Um, all of these traditions seem to tie back to that era. That seems to be the starting point. Huh. And that, that's, that sort of makes sense because um, one common thing theme with all these cultures is that someone instructed them in civilizing skills. And um, at in the in the region of Gobekli Tepe, you have all of the first appearance of of many of these civilizing skills. It's it's the first point where you see cultivated grains, first place where you see animal husbandry, um, stoneworking. Um, uh, let's see, um, the uh, first example of megalithic construction, things like that. Yeah, it's almost like uh, you know the classic Atlantis sort of thing, right? You always hear that. It almost all seems to be coming together, like closer and closer, like with Randall Carlson's work and and your stuff and this ancient civilization and finding Gobekli Tepe. It's kind of like, you know, where the the few people who had eked it out could kind of start transferring their knowledge down. Yes, there's a a pretty vibrant set of researchers out there working on different pieces of it, you know, sort of like all blind men with the elephant, you know, one person looking at the foot, one person looking at the tail and so forth. Yeah, it seems um, like a more exciting time than it has been in a while. Yeah, it really is. It's uh, pretty interesting. Um, it's a, as I said, it's my pleasure at these conferences to get to be, actually meet some of these people. You know, they're, uh, it's a very um, cooperative community of researchers. Uh, it's very little ego involved, and usually people are willing to help each other out and share ideas and share research and things like that, and that's pretty unusual in a field like this. Yeah, because it's changing so quick now too, right? Like, does the, does the new evidence of the new DNA kind of evidence of uh, where we came from as far as like part Denisovian and, and all that whole change of the Neanderthal and the <clears throat> Cro-Magnon man, does that all come into your research too? No, that, that's quite a bit uh, further back than, than where I go. Um, the, the period that I, I'm uh, starting from, the earliest period that I tie things to is just after the end of the Ice Age, which right. is about 10,000 BC, and you have to go back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years to get the tracing back of of where all of the the DNA goes. But DNA studies do come into play. Uh, for example, um, trying to sort out whether there could have been influences in various regions. Uh, DNA studies help with that, and language studies help with that. Uh, migration studies help. What about? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a bit of a cough here. <laughs> so what about um, the the studies of uh, what was I thinking of there? Not not the Denisovians, but you're going back ten thousand years after the Ice Age. So what about right civilization after. before that, like before the Ice Age? Do you think like just not as far as evidence goes, but your opinion, like um, 
was it going on during and before the Ice Age? Okay, well, my opinions tend to be driven by the statements of the cultures I'm studying. Okay. If, you know, if I don't have a culture that claims something, or typically more than one culture that claims the same thing, you know, I, don't, I try not to make that an interpretation of mine. My interpretations need to be based on what they're saying, not what I'm saying. Right. But, but based on the cultures I'm studying, there are um, indications that there were things before the Ice Age. Um, you might be familiar with the Egyptian concept of the first time. Their, their notion of the first time is this revered period in time that, that everything had to be justified in terms of it was like the, the starting point for everything. The Buddhists have a similar concept of the first time that instruction was given to humanity by Buddha. Hmm. Uh, but the same words that are involved in describing those concepts in Egypt and in Buddhism, uh, the Dogen have similar words, but the Dogen words refer to a time when humanity was restored to culture. And hmm. so it's statements like that that make it seem to me that there was something before the Ice Age that, that we could track you know, potentially track back to. But the farther back we go, the harder it is to find creative ways to be able to anchor interpretations. You know, up to 3000 BC, you can point to a document or a written text and say, here, this is what the ancients thought. They said it right here. You get much before 3000 BC and you don't have written texts and now you have to find other um, coherent and convincing ways of, as I say, anchoring an interpretation to be able to demonstrate that this is what the culture thought. And you get to the Ice Age, and the Ice Age is like this gigantic blockade of information to information. Um, you've got the Tibetans talking about Mu ancestors, and Mu is, of course, the, one of the names of one of the ancient um, continents um, that mythically there were, was supposedly culture at before the Ice Age. So you have little, little indications like that that make it look like there was something before the Ice Age. Another uh, interesting indicator is uh, with the new book that I'm just finishing writing, um, I, ha I come up with reasons to um, overtly trust what the Greeks are telling us about geography. I can demonstrate that some of the ancient Greek writers, when they described certain ge geographical locales and told us, what they were like and where they were lo located and things like that, that they're flatly telling us the truth. And so that leads me to think that we could probably trust what Homer was telling or what uh, Plato was telling us about Atlantis uh -huh. and that there might be something there to, to look into. But I haven't actually taken my studies beyond that boundary of the, the Ice Age yet. and You'd have to go there to be able to look at these things. I think just how much Gobekli Tepe carvings look like Easter Island carvings pretty much seals the deal for me. <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty compelling. And um, there are only a few possibilities of why, as to why there could be such similarity of stonework all around the world in these ancient cultures that were supposedly far removed from another one another. Um, and when you get down to the level of the cultures, the statements of the cultures I'm studying what they're saying is, what they're all saying is, look, someone who, who knew how to do these things taught us how to do it. And so it looks to me as if the stonework in, in Peru is similar to the stonework um, in other areas of the world because both groups shared a, uh, a set of instructors who taught them how to do it. Huh. And, and who, who would they be? 
Uh, that's a very good question. If you thought, <laughs> if you uh, if you listen to what the Buddhists say, the Buddhists flatly say that they learned their sacred knowledge from a non-human source. Mm-hmm. One of the leading authorities on Buddhist architecture and symbolism is uh, a professor by the name of Adrian Snodgrass from um, the University of West Sydney, Australia. And I think it's on the third page of his book, The Symbolism of the Stupa, where he says, it is understood in the Buddhist tradition that the most sacred symbols were given to, Buddha, to humanity by a non-human source. Huh. Now, the Dogen agree with that, and that's significant because the Dogen system is a very close match for the Buddhist system, except that it's given in an entirely different language. And so you can't argue that the Buddhists or the Dogen got it from each other. They're both preserving a t- tradition that goes way, way back. You could demonstrate it goes back at least to 400 B.C. And in terms of Dogen words, to at least 700 B.C. And in terms of other evidence, to at least 3,000 B.C. Now, if you have two cultures that manage to keep this entire system straight, all the details of the system straight, separately from one another, until you get down to the very bottom of it, and now I, as a researcher, have a choice. If they're both telling me that they got it from a non-human source, I can either think that they actually did get it from a non-human source, or I can think, look, I've got two cultures that kept every last detail straight, but they both misremembered this last detail, and they misremembered it in the same way. Wow. Wow doesn't seem very likely to me. So because of the rules I make for myself about interpreting things, I have to at least leave the door open to the possibility that there was some non-human involvement here. Right, right. Good point. So is there any other uh, cultures you could lump into that category? Like there's the Buddhism, Buddhists and the Dog- Dogon? Well, um, certainly almost, almost every ancient culture has some aspect of it, even the Egyptians. Right. The Egyptians say that they receive their written language from their gods. And yes. they say that, that the plan for the Giza Plateau fell to earth from the heavens, sort of uh, akin to a crop circle. Mm-hmm. So um, for almost every culture, ancient culture that talks about these issues, in one way or another, credits someone who knew more than they did and someone who is either godlike or mythical or uh, superhuman in some way. And so it's not, it's not unthinkable. As a matter of fact, because they're all saying the same thing, it becomes thinkable. Uh, one of the examples I use is, um, you know, a lot of people treat the ancient cultures like they were four-year-olds. They say, you can't really trust what you read in an ancient text. You know, these people didn't think about things the same way we did and we do, and they weren't as advanced as we are and things like this. Well, imagine if you had a class of four-year-olds who witnessed their teacher being abducted in front of them during class. Now, if you have one four-year-old telling a bunch of investigators that they saw a tall, thin, red-headed man with a beard, you can't really trust that necessarily. A four-year-old is not a reliable witness. But if you have four four-year-olds each independently telling the researchers that, now you've got corroborated, corroborated evidence. This is corroborated testimony. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter that any given witness is unreliable. If they're all telling you the same thing independently, you've now got corroborated testimony. Yeah, and that's the way I... They've never had a chance to talk to each other either about that. that, That's right. And so that's the way I treat these cultures who supposedly were not in regular contact with one another, that when each of them is independently telling me the same thing from slightly different perspectives... 
um, I start to trust what it is they're telling me. Right. So, so you mentioned there was a few reasons why the megalithic stru- structure, structures maybe I can't talk tonight. Why they may be uh, similar all over the world. So the first one is some sort of intervention from some teachers type thing, and then what would be another one? Okay. Well. Um, that intervention of teachers, uh, imagine that you and I were uh, had the same math teacher in high school, but we went to high school decades apart from each other. Now, we might have uh, meet at a cocktail party and realize that we know all the same stories and know have all the same examples of how to work problems and um, uh, you know ha- have all the same anecdotes that were related to us. It's not because you and I ever met. It's because we had the same teacher. Well, that to me, that's that's key to this concept. Um, there are, only, again, only a handful of possibilities, of possibilities of how it could be that these are so similar. You know, you could go with someone like Jung's ideas and say that somehow the human brain is predis- wired in a way that predisposes us to approach stonework in a particular way, but that's almost an impossible claim to prove. Uh, what it's seems more down... Believe. Yes, and also... Um, we have each of these cultures telling us that they learned it from someone who taught it to them. Right, right. It's not, not as if we don't have those statements. So that's really the key thing. Um, the next piece of it is that the Dogen go a little bit farther than the, uh, the Buddhists do. The Dogen say that their teachers were non-human, but they also say that their teachers were non-material. Yeah, now we're having oh, fun. It, yeah, now we're having fun. Now... It's, it's sort of a complicated sense of non-material because it's um, as if um, a boundary between – okay, at the bottom of all these traditions, there's the idea that there are two universes paired, one that's material in nature, which is our universe, and sort of a sister universe next to us that are attached to us, intertwined with us, that is non-material in nature. And it's as if – someone was able to open a boundary between those two universes and sort of reach across and help us out. But in a way that had enough physicality to it that the Dogans say that their, their teachers were concerned about what the effects were going to be on us of being around those teachers. And so the solution to the problem was to take eight Dogan tribes people away from their regular homeland, take them to a remote location and teach them the skills, the civilizing skills they needed to learn and sent them back to teach everybody else. Huh. Okay, now once you're in that kind of a framework, you see that concept repeated again and again and again all around the world, South America and I mean, any place you go pretty much you have the tradition of eight teachers coming with skills, civilizing skills, who are being honored as being the quasi-mythical, quasi-historic teachers who were the bringers of civilizing skills. Now, if the system really worked, that eight were pulled away and taught and sent back, then it makes sense that we have that tradition in many different regions. But it implies that we have somebody involved who was at least regionally capable, if not globally capable. I, I like that idea, the, the dual universes, because I could almost, you know, that, that like borders on almost being able to explain away, explain a lot of things like the psychedelic experience. You can explain maybe ghost encounters, Sasquatch, UFOs, like everything. Lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming. Yes, absolutely. You have a lot of interesting things that a lot of interesting mysteries that sort of evaporate if you, if you accept that one piece. And actually for me, that's one of the 
the hallmarks of a theory that might be true is that by accepting one aspect of it like that, uh, one new tweak of our point of view, suddenly numerous mysteries resolve. Hmm. So let's uh, just for people that aren't familiar with the it's all just ones and zeros. Like a digital, <laughs> yeah. digital universe, yeah. <laughs> so, so what? Uh, can you just back up and just describe the Dogon a little bit for people that haven't uh, heard of them before? Sure. the The Dogon were. I was very fortunate. That the Dogon were my starting point in all of this. The Dogon are a modern day African tribe. <clears throat> they consist of about three hundred thousand individuals, and they're considered to be a modern day primitive tribe, meaning they don't have high culture. They don't drive mm. automobiles so forth. Okay, right. they're from, from Mali, which is a country in the, the northwest bulge of Africa. They've located themselves in a remote locale about eight miles across, eight hours drive across the desert to get to them from um, any civilized place you might start. Wow, okay. Okay, they're really remotely located, and that's part of the reason they've been able to, to maintain a tradition. Um, the Dogon are they, their culture represents a kind of a crossroads for several different ancient traditions. They have rituals that are a lot like Judaism. They wear skull caps and prayer shawls. They circumcise. They celebrate a jubilee year, like the, like this happens in Judaism. They have civic traditions that are a lot like ancient Egypt. As a matter of fact, so much like ancient Egypt that if the Egyptians did it, or if the Dogen do it, the chances are pretty good that the Egyptians also did it. Um, better yet, it doesn't just represent some random period in Egyptian culture. The evidence points to the idea that this is preserving a very early version of Egyptian culture before writing appeared, because the Dogen don't have a native system of writing, and before, um, okay, the Egyptians had a 300... Uh, uh, they had a 360-day civic year that was reconciled with five uh, leap year days, five intercalary days with a 365-day year. Well, that those five intercalary days um, began being used early in Egyptian culture, maybe around 2900 BC. And the Dogon don't have those, but they have all the calendars. Huh. So there are multiple points of evidence here that look like the Dogon are preserving a tradition that was very, very early in Egyptian culture, like right at the very beginning of dynastic Egypt or just before that. Interesting. Okay. That gives us a good okay, idea. So, so now the third thing is that the Dogon cosmology, their creation okay. tradition, their religion, if you want to call it that, but it doesn't really play as a religion. It plays as um, sort of a mix of what we now see as being religion and science. This creation tradition is a point-for-point -point match for a version of Buddhism that relates to a Buddhist shrine called a stupa. So we, uh, it's given in a different language, though. The, the language it's given in is ancient Egyptian words. We're using, the Dogon are using what are essentially ancient Egyptian words to explain their cosmology. So set up as this configuration is, we have cross-comparability in a number of different directions for a number of different aspects of this. We can compare, you know, cultural traditions to ancient Egypt. We can compare cosmological words to ancient Egypt. We can compare cosmological concepts to Buddhism and to ancient Egypt. We can compare um, words that are a match between the Dogon and the Egyptians to ancient Hebrew because in addition to those 
Hebrew, those Jewish rituals or Jewish style rituals, they also have words that are essentially Hebrew words also. So you've got really good cross comparison here and now you can take any any subject matter or any concept you, you're trying to explore and the Dogen priests have a very clear sense of why they do what they do and they offer up an explanation. They say, you know, the reason we um, we do such and such is for a particular reason. Now we can go and here are the words we use to describe it. Mm -hmm. We can take those words, go to an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary and by through various kinds of research for that dictionary, demonstrate that what the Dogen priests are telling us is the same way that the Egyptians looked at the concept. Or we can go to, to the Buddhism and demonstrate, only this time in terms of Sanskrit, um, that the way the Buddhists understood this concept was the same. Wow. And so through that, those cross-comparisons, we, we can sort of focus in three-dimensionally on what these, these concepts represent. Interesting. So I guess it's easier to do that nowadays, uh, even in the last decade or so with the Internet, too. The Internet helps a lot, but what's interesting is that, the mo in my experience, the most reliable sources I, I've referenced are sources that are largely written before 1920. Wow, okay. Huh. Um, because at the, the closer down to around 1970 you get, the less... Um, I, I'm, it's hard to say what the reasons are, but the less reliable the sources are. It may be because of, you know, professional pressures that are being put on academics to say certain things and not say other things. Hmm. But there are also certain trends that start happening around 1970, like uh, the building of the dam in Egypt that basically covered huge swaths of of land that might hold artifacts, or there there are deliberate. Uh, academic changes to the way the Egyptian hieroglyphic language is interpreted starting around 1970 that, from my perspective, effectively cut the language off from its um, African roots. Um, an example I give is um, if you've ever uh, known someone who's from New Zealand or if you've ever visited New Zealand, they speak Eng English in New Zealand. But in the process of speaking English, they effectively change the pronunciation of basically two vowel sounds. Now, you wouldn't think that would have much effect on understandability of the language, but in many cases it renders um, a person in the United States incapable of, of, of understanding the spoken language of the person from New Zealand. Two, two lousy vowel sounds. So what they did in ancient Egypt starting around 1970 was they... Um, changed the way they interpreted how certain glyphs were pronounced and um, how certain words were pronounced and how certain uh, symbols were interpreted, things like that. And with a couple of tweaks, they managed to effectively disconnect those words from the African roots that, that people like Sir Wallace Budge in earlier times had connected them to. Wow, I don't think I've heard that before. That's interesting. Okay, so my work is based on Budge's Dictionary, which is a dictionary that modern Egyptologists say is outdated and unreliable as far right. as they're concerned. <laughs> as far as they're concerned, Budge might have been so, so poorly qualified to write that dictionary that he didn't even understand Egyptian hieroglyphs. Huh. My, my outlook is 
I have an entire body of related words, cosmological words, that I've spent 20 years demonstrating correlations to Budge's dictionary and on multiple points of evidence for each word. And my outlook is Budge can't possibly be wrong, flatly wrong, about the language in a way that predictably agrees with the Dogen. Something's wrong with that picture. Yeah, that's a good point. And so because the Dogen predictably agree with Budge, the Dogen represent an independent source to compare Budge to. And I'm allowed as a researcher to say, look, I have a new independent source of words here that affirm what Budge's dictionary says. And, and Budge hadn't studied the Dogon at all? Well, Budge uh, knew a lot about many different languages from ancient times. Right. He knew, knew a lot about African languages. He knew a lot about Hebrew. He knew a lot about Greek and Coptic. Um, he knew a lot about Ethiopian. He was a, a master of many different languages. And part of that's part of what qualified him to be able to, to sort out this dictionary. A lot of times in the dictionary, if he wants to explain something, he'll explain it using an, uh, a Hebrew um, letter or you know the pronunciation of a Hebrew word or the meaning of a Hebrew word. Um, and he'll make references back and forth to the different languages. But working from Budge's dictionary... Someone whose perspective is an African perspective can make sense of how these words link. Um, since 1970, with the, the changes, uh, with the new preferred dictionaries that are being used by the Egyptologists, you can't make those connections anymore. To give you an example, um, historically, every culture that had contact with ancient Egypt, either just prior to Egyptian culture, contemporaneous with it, or just after, who... Um, makes reference to the Egyptian god Amen, refers to it by the term Amen, except the Ethiopians. The Ethiopians refer to it as Emen. They pronounce it Emen. These Egyptologists who were working on the Revised Dictionary decided for some reason that the proper acceptable interpretation was Emen. Hmm, that's interesting. With that simple a choice, I mean, they can justify, they can say, okay, this word was more closely related to Ethiopian than it was to the other languages. We're going to justify making this change. But when they make that change, they've now disenfranchised every other culture that had a relationship with Egypt in terms of the word Amen. Yeah, that's a good example. Kind of scary, actually. Yeah, it is, it is kind of scary. So my outlook is I don't need approval to use the dictionary I'm using. 20 years of research shows that Budge is in agreement with the Dogen, and that's sufficient. Yeah. So, so let's let's think about uh, that. You're talking about the evidence of non-human intervention type stuff, and Darren brought up psychedelics. Did you stumble across any any of this during your research of a possibility that psychedelics or some sort of entheogenic plant was responsible for some of this knowledge and or non-human intervention? Uh, that's a complicated question. Clearly, there were psychedelics being used by cultures that I've studied and other cultures I haven't studied okay. in ancient times. And clearly, the experiences that people were having using psychedelics, that shaman were having, the priests were having, um, seem to connect to some of the things that are being described um, in the traditions I'm studying. But none of the traditions I'm studying claim that as the source of their knowledge. They're not saying we went into a trance and saw this stuff. They're saying a physical teacher was here who taught us this thing. Right. Um, so there, 
potentially there are things going on on two different levels here, and it's it's possible that the use of the drugs, as you say, link links to something that's act that actual has a rea- has a reality to it that we don't understand. Um, another example I give when I talk to people who are are um, firm skeptics who only want to look at things from a purely scientific perspective, I explain to them that my outlook on science is: um, imagine you get into your automobile and once you get inside the car, you make the rule for yourself that from now on, the only things you're going to consider to be real are the things you can see in the car's mirrors. Now, making that rule, you could probably drive pretty safely for an entire lifetime, maybe, and never have a problem following that rule. But anyone who is aware realizes that there's a large enough blind spot there to hide a tractor trailer <laughs> in the space that you can't see with the mirrors. This is the way I think the the uh, the world of science is, is going right now. I think that there are blind spots here that once we account for those blind spots, we'll understand that there are things going on that we have not been able to account for before. Have you noticed that changing at all since you're, you've been doing this research for a couple decades now? Oh, absolutely. And every, every researcher I know who's involved in this has stories to tell about odd things that happen. Um, it doesn't take very long to figure out that there are things going on we can't explain. And you either accept that or you don't. And you either tolerate the fact that you can't explain it or you don't. But uh, progressively, it gets, it gets weirder and weirder. I mean, the last couple of years, there have been things happening that, um, that I would have, have had a hard time dealing with when I first started out. But some of the early ones were pretty pretty extreme, too. Uh, when I was writing the first book, um, I reached a point where there was a resource text I needed. It was called um, Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah. Okay. I knew, knew from one of the, the sources that I was following, uh, hang, from the, looking at the bibliography. Hang yep. on a sec uh, for a second, Laird, because, Darren, uh, you, wanna, you might want to rate this. We do a little synchronicity thing here on the show where we talk about synchronicities and Darren's got his uh, Canadian third-party rating system here. <laughs> so that might be considered uh, one that Darren wants to, to rate. So, go, okay, go ahead. Tell us that story. <laughs> okay. So um, I was following uh, – I had started reading uh, Robert Temple's The Serious Mystery, which was one of the first books out about the Dogen. And I was using his bibliography to sort of drive some of my research to figure out where to go next. And this was a book that I needed. I realized that I needed it. But the problem was this was in the early 1990s before you could go online and and search for a book, an out-of-print book. And so I had exhausted all the local sources I had, used bookstores and, and current bookstores. Nobody could get the book for me. I had gone to interlibrary loan services through Vassar College where I graduated, and they couldn't get the book for me. I, I finally came back to my wife, Risa, and said, you know, it looks like I'm not going to be able to get that book. So I, I resigned myself to that, and a couple of days later, a box turned up on the back step at the back door of our house, and the box was from one of my wife's, uh, he had, she had an aging cousin who lived in Queens, New York, who lived in a, a, sort of an over, overcrowded apartment, and every, every so often, he would get it in his head to divest himself of a bunch of random junk. And I do mean junk. I mean, just um, you never knew what was going to be in a box if he sent it to you. It could be you know, a pair of old socks. It could be, <laughs> you know, um, it could be old kitchen utensils. Who knows what it was going to be? 
Well, in this particular box, in and among all the random crap, was my book. <laughs> how long? <laughs> now, he, how he, long? Had no, he had no idea. This was the same week that I told her that I wasn't going to be able to find it. Um, he had no idea I even had an interest in the subject. When, when Reese asked him um, you know, why he had sent that book, he didn't even remember actually having it. And he, <laughs> this was something that had been laying around his house that he just divested of. He had no need for it. He got rid of it. He couldn't remember where he got it from. The crazy thing about that synchronicity is that, it, and it's a theme with a lot of our guests that we've had on, is that it's a synchronicity that starts you on a pretty well-defined path, right? Like that obviously was at the beginning of your, you know, your research, and now you've been going from, you know, pretty hard since then. Well, yes, and that's the sort of synchronicity that you can't really ignore and you can't really explain away. Um, you could say it's an extreme coincidence, but it really falls at the far end of extreme coincidences. There's no, there shouldn't be any chance that this had happened. Right. And so for somebody like me, it puts me in the position of saying there are either things going on here that I don't understand or I have to accept the fact that I'm in the realm of some very extreme, extreme coincidences. Now, since that time, there have been countless cases where things comparable to that um, often not as tangible as that, but comparable to that happen. Um, the most recent one um, happened about uh, 10 weeks ago when an acquaintance of mine from across the world, an email acquaintance of mine from across the world in, in, in Australia, um, sent me a question about a site in Great Britain. And I knew nothing about the question he was asking. I, had, I was really not qualified to answer the question, but I pursued it anyway. And when I, I've learned always to pursue a question if someone asks it <laughs> because the answer to his question allowed an, the entire latest book I've just finished writing to fall out in about six weeks' time. Wow. Okay. That's the sort of thing that this has evolved into. There, there are – if you're looking for it, there are sort of act, active assists happening that you need to pay attention to it and, and be scrupulous about following up on. If you do that, all sorts of interesting little doors open up. That's a great definition right there, Adrian. I don't think we've heard that one before. Active assists. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I would I describe my books as having been pushed or assisted. Um, there's stuff going on here that, that without just the right help at the right moment I wouldn't have gotten to. For example, one of the, the key pieces here that had to fall in place to be able to make this happen was understanding, finding a way to, uh, to demonstrate that the Dogen system was a match for the Buddhist system. I didn't even realize it was a match. What happened was my daughter uh, back in 2005 went to India. Uh, with a group called the Himalayan Health Exchange. And she was there for a few weeks working on projects as a student with, with them. And when she came back, she casually mentioned, she said, um, you know, when I was in India, I happened to see um, shrines all around the country that reminded me a little bit of the shrine your, your Dogen tribe makes. <laughs> and so I stopped her there. I said, don't tell me anymore. You know, she said they're called stupas or chortons. I said, don't tell me anymore. Let me make a half a dozen predictions for you based on what I know about the Dogen Shrine, about what the symbolism should be of the Buddhist Shrine. And then you and I will go online together and we'll demonstrate that the half a dozen predictions are right. <laughs> and we did that. 
And so from there, I knew that I had a match between the two systems. I now started tracking down the most authoritative sources I could find on the Buddhist stupa. And then with that piece, I had a whole other dimension to the projects I was working on. That's interesting. <laughs> I love those stories. So, Darren, do you have a, ra- a rating for that uh, the book, uh, Synchronicity? Yeah, I'll give that a 9.5. No, really? Wow. Yeah. That's very, he's very generous today, Laird. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I always lose that half point on the dismount. <laughs> That's pretty much one of the highest scores Darren's ever given. That is the highest, yeah. <clears throat> Mind you, my uncle emailed See, him today to tell think... him to lighten up on the synchronicity rating. So I will not lighten up. There you go, Uncle Dave. Darren's lighting up for you. No. Somebody's got to hold Graham down. Everything's a <laughs> okay. Graham. I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example, okay? Um, it's as if there were a um, cosmic game of charades being played. Okay, in the traditions I study, the archaic tradition that I tie all of these other traditions to, it's understood that there are two universes, one non-material and one material. Okay. The basic, basic difference between the two is mass or matter. Now, the problem is that if you don't have mass, okay, this is, this is Einstein. The more mass you have, the slower a time frame you're, you exist in. Time slows down as mass increases. As you have less mass, time frame increases, speeds up. So if you have a, an entire universe that has no mass, it's non-material, it essentially has to exist in an infinitely quick time frame. Without time, really, or something. Yeah, really, without, essentially without time, without a dimension of time. Now, according to the archaic traditions, the philosophies that define these traditions, the non-material universe has perfect knowledge, but an inability to act. And the reason it has an inability to act is because it doesn't have time to act. The material, material universe that we live in has imperfect knowledge, but perfect ability to act. So many times the way this stuff plays out is as if somebody on the non-material side is trying to affect things in a way that causes somebody on the material side to take an action or to understand that they need to take an action. Right, And it, it plays out a lot like, as I say, a game of charades. Uh, for me, in particular, with the book, uh, the Point of Origin book I was working on, I actually really hadn't started working on it. This is one of the pieces that, that helped that fall into place. So is it the, possible that that sort of like consciousness would be orientated? Like, you know, if you look into the philosophy that consciousness isn't a result of the brain, it's... Um, you know, more like a, the the brain's more like a receiver. Is it possible that this other universe is where actual consciousness is is coming in from? It it could be. There there are a lot of possibilities. Um, the the way these these okay. The idea is that universes form in pairs. Ours is the fourth of seven, so that in our immediate larger vicinity beyond the universe. There are, are ostensibly 14 universes, half of them non-material, the other half material, and paired with each other. 
Okay, and the idea is that there's a flow of energy between those universes that is compared to the natural water cycle in the world, where um, water evaporates from the oceans to create clouds. The clouds are blown by the wind over the mountains, rise up, um, get colder, and drop their water as rain, which runs down the rivulets and the streams and the rivers back to the ocean again. That cycle is what allows life to exist on our planet. According to these traditions, there's a cycle of energy like that between these two um, universes that is as essential to life as the natural water cycle is. That without that flow, you don't have anything. Huh. And the, and the bleed-through comes through some sort of intention on, from the non-material to, to Actually, the, affect the material? The, it seems the, like uh, emotion is always a key factor, too. Like, if there's no emotion attached to it, it doesn't seem to be as extensive. Okay, the, uh, the immediate point of interface, the point of, of the entwining of these two universes happens at um, – how can I explain this? I don't know if you uh, know anything about string theory. String theory uh-huh. um, postulates that there's a little tiny structure at every point in space and time called a Calabi-Yau space. It's named for two people, Calabi and Yao, who discovered it. Okay. It's okay. It's a little wrapped up bundle of collapsed dimensions, basically okay. seven collapsed, uh, sensibly seven collapsed dimensions. Now, the Dogen and the Buddhists and the Egyptians and other cultures that I study, uh, even the Kabbalists, conceive of this this little structure as being the essential component of the material universe, and um, they conceive of it in a couple of different ways. One way to look at it is as seven rays of a star of increasing length that come out from a central point. Another way of conceiving of it is in terms of the spiral that you could draw that would inscribe the ends of those rays. Hmm. Okay, now that spiral, that little spiral, that little egg of the world, as the Dogen referred to it, the, the spinning the physical part of that spiral is mass or matter. But in between the, that spiraling spiral, the, between the, the coils of that spiral, is light. And that light is the essence of the non-material side. Oh, okay. And, okay, now our universe, does, uh, our universe sort of um, gets created a, a lot like a television picture. And it's, if you don't have that interface between the two halves of it, it can't evoke itself, basically. It's like if you don't turn on the TV set, you can't see the picture. This was a little clearer, a little easier to understand before cable TV. Right. When they would bro- broadcast things out of the air, a TV shows out of the air as waves. And those shows existed for all practical purposes as waves. And unless you turned on your TV set, you would never see them as a coherent show. Okay. I suppose these well, days the better comparison would be Wi-Fi. It's like when yeah, the Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi goes yeah. down. Yeah, that might that might be true. Uh, that that probably is true. But the the essence of it is that um, what we're seeing is a reflected image of a more fundamental reality that exists as waves, and the very act of trying to perceive it is the counterpart to turning on your Wi-Fi or turning on your television set. And when you turn that on, you translate those those waves into something that you can see as being coherent. So that's your intention, is what you're saying, in a way. Yeah, it's, it's intention. It's really defined as perception. 
perception. It's or, okay. ex- examining or perceiving. It's detecting that something is there. So is that consciousness the, the interface between the two? Or is it the, um, the perception? That's, that's a very good question because when you get down to the bottom of the system, there has to be an initial act of perception that causes this whole system to start. And that's the piece that nobody can define. That's the undefinable piece is where did that initial spark, that initial conscious perception come from? So even in these traditions, there's that, that piece of it that they can't get to. Yeah, and string theory gets into quantum physics too, doesn't it? So you get into the observer effect and all that sort of fun stuff. Yes, which that's right. Which could, in you know, some pe- could be exactly what synchronicity or you manifesting your book is. Because I mean, once you get into the observer effect, you can get into when people talk about being able to manifest your own reality. Like all that shit starts to be st- starts to become realistic possibilities. Right, because we once you open the door to the idea that that uh, what we're seeing is not really real, you know, there are endless possibilities. Uh, now, a, a, another example I use for people to try to experience: How can I experience something that seems real that isn't real? Well, the the easiest example of that in the, pra- the practical world is: Cross your first two fingers and take a pencil and run the pencil up between the crossed fingers. If you close your eyes and concentrate on it, pretty soon you'll start to feel two pencils. Hmm. Can you explain okay. that one again? Okay. Take your, first, your index finger and your middle finger and cross them. And now grab a pen or a pencil and rub it between the tips of your two fingers. Now, because it's that pen, pen or pencil is rubbing against the outside of the second finger and the outside of the first finger... Your brain perceives that as being two pens or pencils. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Now, if you do that long enough, you can convince yourself there are two pencils there. That's the way reality works. What we're seeing is a reflected image. We're seeing, a, we're seeing an illusion. Now, when it comes down to entangled particles... I know as a programmer. I just can't stop playing with my pen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I I know as a programmer. um, Okay, I work with databases uh, for businesses. Now I know that if you on your computer are looking at a customer file with names and addresses, and I'm sitting on my computer looking at the same customer file with the same names and addresses, and you make a change, or better yet, we're both looking at Facebook and you post a comment. Even though our computers are thousands of miles apart from one another, when you make that posting, I see it on my computer. It's as if something has magically communicated information between our two computers over great distances at incredible speed. But they haven't. What's happening is we're both looking at the same piece. We're looking at one piece of information. It looks like two to us, but it's only one. On another server that's not even in the same room as us. That's right. So... The concept of entanglement, when you have entangled pairs of particles, my first impulse is to say, there aren't two particles there. There are really only one, and we see them as two, and the distance between them is an illusion. So you open up all sorts of very intense possibilities here that are, are, um, right now we're not equipped to prove what might be true and what might not be true. Um, Heisenberg says that the very act of perceiving something, if, it's small, if you have a, a, a particle that's small enough, the very act of perceiving it will disturb it. 
Well, I know that that's only because we don't have tools refined enough to perceive it without disturbing it. If we had a small enough tool, we could detect where it was and not move it. Yeah, but it is is just us looking at it affecting it anyway. Well, it, does the does the act of an observer automatically have some sort of influence on everything? That that's a good question, but it may or it may not. Now, it looks to the scientists as if when we perceive that very tiny thing that the results we get are random. But again, I know that if what you're trying to measure is in exists in centimeters and the smallest unit of measure you've got is a foot, uh, ruler, a foot-long ruler, there's no way you're going to predict accurately what the result's going to be. Yeah. And yeah. so a, a large part of our problem is that we don't have tools that are refined enough to, to measure these things. Right. And if we did, we might find out that what looks random to us right now isn't. Right. Hmm. That was just the way we were perceiving it before. Right. So there's all sorts of perception versus reality stuff going on here that when you open that door to a second non-material universe, um, the sky is limited in terms of what might be possible. <clears throat> wow. Okay, my mind is melting right now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff I work with all the time and think about all the time. Um, I have, the advantage I have is I have a group, the Dogen and the Dogen priests, who are telling me not – they're not saying – this is what we think happens. They're saying, this is what happens. And what they're saying is close enough to reasonable that it looks to me like that my best guess is they're right about it. Hmm. And so my default position on any of these questions is to ask, what do the Dogans say about it? And can I confirm that with the other cultures? And if so, I go with what they think because I'm pretty sure they're right. They're the best source I've got. I based, they, they, for me, are like the fifth grade teacher's copy of the textbook where they have the answers um, printed in the back of the, of the textbook to the, question, the chapter questions, you know? <laughs> Isn't that funny? And they're the most tri- primitive, one of the most primitive cultures around. And, and they're the ones you're going to for. That's answers. right. Now. Yeah. Yeah, because the truth of the matter is that uh, there was a non, an unexpected consequence of the establishment of writing. What the the teachers didn't realize when they were when they facilitated systems of writing in all these cultures is that as soon as these initiates wrote something down, it absolved them from having to actually understand it or remember it. Yeah, interesting. And so. All of the once you put it down on media, it's like uh, you know, back in the 1980s, you decided you were going to be safe and put everything important to you on a three-inch floppy disk. <laughs> Guess what? There's nothing left that's going to read three-inch floppy disks. You know, I put it on um, eight-track uh, cartridge. I put my music on eight-track cartridge. Guess what? There's nothing left that reads eight-track cartridges.
So you're saying that, that as cultures started to write more, that they may have either lost their knowledge or stopped experiencing things? Though they stopped having to learn it fully because right. they, were, they were under the mistaken assumption that having it written down kept it safe, but it didn't. That's almost and kind so, of the same effect you see, like Google and shit having on people, and like having a contact list in your iPhone. That's kind of like the yes. micro version of that. Yeah. How no one can that remember is, a phone absolutely. number. Absolutely. Yeah, nobody can remember a phone number, and they lose that phone. They drop the phone in the toilet, and you're Game sunk. Over. Yep. <laughs> so Except um, now we're on the cloud, so it's, it's that's right. It's in the it's in our man-made Akashic records. So the cloud is like the non-material universe. <laughs> that's right. I have a, a Chrome. I have a Chromebook, and on one of my trips uh, last month, uh, a strap in a carry bag I was carrying broke, and it Ooh. fell to the ground and smashed the monitor, the screen on the Chromebook. And so Chromebooks are very inexpensive. I went out and I bought a new one and brought it back and was anticipating a period of setup to try to get back to where I had been before. Yeah. And all it took was to open the Chromebook, select a language, and I was back in business 100%. Wow. Everything that I had had before the accident, I had back. Just downloading it from our man-made cloud. Uh, did, yeah. yeah, I didn't even have to download anything. It just it linked right up to it, and nothing had been lost. Nothing was really on the Chromebook. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. So have you noticed a big change then, and not, not only technology-wise, but skeptic with the skeptics, with the mainstream paradigm, since you've been researching all this stuff? Has it opened up a little bit? Is it is it... Is it is it still like you know grasping at straws trying to hold this paradigm together? Like, what, what's your take on that? Okay, right now we have such a vibrant set of researchers looking into things that this group is making its own headway and its own progress that is independent of academics. Right, and so so it's no longer a concern whether the academics approve of it or not. They, you know, if if we're on a train pulling out of the station, they can be on the train or not. It doesn't make any difference to us. That's interesting. And it seems to be like co-opted by the fact that there seems to be like a general distrust of mainstream media, mainstream academia, institutions. You know, basically everything. Which you can attribute the internet to some of the success in that is that people have, you know, starting to say through the bullshit. And it seems like, you know, this field, the shit we look at is no exception. Right. Now, the only thing that's stopping that same thing from happening in the group of alternative researchers is, well, first of all, there hasn't been, hasn't been enough time yet for it to become entrenched. Um, but... If it's handled the wrong way, what will happen is people will become so invested in their own perspective on a theory that they will effectively become those traditional researchers where they can no longer, no longer feel that they can be open to a new idea if it contradicts what they already thought. Maybe that's why some of these conferences are so important, right? Like you always hear people talking about going to e-conferences and stuff like that, but then you would kind of lose all that sort of face-to-face that might be kind of you know, integral to... Yeah, the face-to-face is very important, and the even more important part, I've had, I've had certain conferences that I've been invited to where at the first invitation, I was reassured that I would never have to come face-to-face with any of the attendees of the conference, that they could sequester me, and I could come in and give my presentation and go back out and never have to actually come in contact with anyone. 
And my outlook is, why in the world would I want to do that? 90% of the value for me of the conference is meeting the people and hearing the questions and getting someone to ask the stupid question. It's a, stu- the stupid, it's a stu- ostensibly stupid question from somebody who doesn't know not to ask it that, that causes progress. Now, where does that come from? Like, where does that that culture of come to this conference, speak, and leave without talking to anybody? Like, where does that come from? It comes from presenters who have become popular enough that they spend most of their life going to these conferences and, and they're on the road a lot of the time like a performer is. And when that happens, their most valuable commodity is really their privacy. Right, right. And so that kind of a person doesn't want to have to be bothered week after week, day after day with, with endless conferences, with endless fans who are asking the same repeated sets of questions. Yeah, because they're always in that environment. Like when they're out in public or whatever, they're always being right. scorned right. by people. Yeah, yeah that That's makes right. sense. And so it, it's tough when you're in that position. It, it, you, it ends up recreating the problem we're trying to get around. But my outlook is... A few, a few principles to keep in mind. The first principle is this information is not proprietary. That if I know something that's going to help somebody else who's doing research or who's, it's going to help an individual who's got a problem, that happens more and more often. Um, I can't look at this information as being proprietary and I don't want to be involved with anybody who does. Right. This needs to be a, uh, basically an open, open forum. Open source, yeah. Open source forum, right. And so there's got to be free sharing of information, and it doesn't matter if it steps on the toes of something I said five books ago. <laughs> you know, that you know, we're going to be right about some things, we're going to be wrong about some things, and uh, let, let that all fall where, where it may. What we're trying to do is get to an answer that works. And is that changing too? Is that opening up? Now that, now it, that it, you guys have your own kind of group of researchers that really ac- academia in, in some ways doesn't really matter because you guys are doing your own, you know, academic research. Um, and it's becoming more open source? Um, actually, it so far it always has been open source. This group of researchers, since I've been involved with them since around the early 2000s, it has been an almost uniformly friendly, um, open community, helpful community. I've ne- I can't remember... Uh, more than a couple of occasions where I would approach somebody to say, "Can I use your photograph?" Or um, I know you under you know about this subject matter. Can you tell me about this? Or um, you know, approach them for help on any sort of a level. You know, can you make an introduction to me f- with so and so? I never encounter a situation where these people aren't open and friendly and willing to help. That's nice to hear. And that's where we want to try to keep it. And the, the conferences help do that. Because at the conferences, we get to know each other on a personal basis. And we get to see how the thing I'm working on that I thought was miles away from what so-and-so was working on actually happens to integrate with it very nicely. You know, the, It merges right together with, like, uh, there's a, um, a gentleman by the name of Barry Fitzgerald. I don't know if you know who he is. He yeah, we, we met him at Paradigm there. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He did. That's right. Yeah. Coming coming to Paradigm, my expectation was that he w- among the presenters, he was the one I would probably have the least in common with. Yeah. <laughs> by the end of the weekend, I realized exactly the opposite was true. That he and I had more in common than most of the the people who were there. Yeah, that's crazy. 
Yeah, I was expecting him to be all go- ghosts and goblins sort of stuff. But yeah, he had pretty that those like. Well, I guess he's talking about those portals. He's talking about would almost be the same sort of thing we're talking about into the alternate universe. I guess. Yeah, that's that may, may end up being a way to understand them. That that there may be a reality to what he's seeing that connects to the stuff I'm studying. And possibly those ancient cultures could have accessed. Uh alternate states of consciousness or parallel universes through the, what Barry's studying, I guess. Right. Or um, the CPAC conference is, um, it focuses a lot on the concept of the Yuga cycle. Uh-huh. This is the idea that there are cycles in the, basically the, the level of, of intelligence and intuition of humanity. Uh, oh, there's, there's, there's a grand cycle, there's a grand rotation that, for one reason or another, um, brings us through seasons, essentially seasons of, of our abilities to be able to do things and understand things. Is that supposed to be related to the, uh, the uh, not the universe, but our galaxy? Yeah, the galactic, well, Walter Cruttenden, who's the guy who organizes a CPAC conference, um, he, his outlook is that the reason this happens is because there's a rotation going on that we don't under- the astronomers don't understand that brings us closer and closer to that galactic center for you know 12,000 years and then loops us back around and takes us farther and farther away from that galactic center and as we get closer to it electromagnetism essentially um, has an effect on our ability to learn wow <laughs> and perceive and where are we now we're just starting our way back up Weren't the yugas caused the up and down is from like the breathing of a giant turtle or some crazy? I remember remember it all like ties into something that's breathing and that like every cycle of breath is some like unfathomable amount of time. Yes, yes. And and all this stuff does, it does connect. Um, And I'm not sure about the reference about the turtle. If it were, if the reference is the turtle, the turtle is a symbol for the relationship between these two universes. Um, I'll try to explain what that is. The best best way to see it is in relation to ancient China. In ancient China, the two earliest deities they have documented in the Chinese tradition, uh, there's a mother goddess and a creator god. And the mother goddess holds a a compass, like a Masonic compass, a two-pointed compass, and she uses it to measure the circularity of the heavens. And the creator God holds a carpenter's square to measure the squareness of the earth. Now, these are metaphors for the idea of the concept of as above, so below. But those concepts have multiple meanings depending on the framework you're looking at. If you're talking about the universe and the earth, um, they relate to processes that happen in the macrocosm as opposed to processes that happen in the microcosm of matter. But if you're talking about universes, they're talking about processes that happen on the non-material side as opposed to the material side. Now, so you have one symbolically associated with circles, the other one symbolically associated with squares. The purpose of this tradition is to reconcile a circle with a square, reconcile the processes of one with the processes of the other. And a hemisphere, the shape of a hemisphere, which is round on top and square on bottom, is a geometric figure that accomplishes that reconciliation, and that's the shape of a turtle shell. And so the turtle becomes 
uh, a symbol for this whole concept of reconciling those two sets of ideas with each other. Oh, that's interesting. How, what, and how now, if you talk it? about the, if you talk about the flow of energy between the universes, then you have breathing that's coming in and out of that shell. Oh, okay. There you go, Darren. There's your answer to your turtle question. So, how far back does this China prehistory go? Uh, the the Chinese tradition goes back to about 3,000 BC. Also, um, one of the difficulties in China is that events that happened at 3,000 BC we only know about from texts that weren't written down until around 300 BC. And so you have this huge gap of thousands of years between when the thing happened and when it was written down. And so all the academic researchers, there's constant infighting over the tiniest little things because you can't prove anything. You can't anchor an interpretation. My approach to China was a little different because I know that I can correlate their tradition to the traditions I've been studying. There are certain positive points of correlation. And I also know that the farther back in time, the more commonality of language you have. And so you have all these ancient Chinese terms that describe these things that nobody knows for sure what they mean. And they don't realize that if you can look up those words phonetically in the Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary or in the Dogen dictionary and find descriptions of what the concept represents. And because they agree with each other, you, you, you're on a ba- I have a basis for saying, here's what they really meant. Interesting. So what do you know how to explain the gap, or do you have any theories on why there is a gap? Yes, because it's just instability in the Chinese culture. This tradition that I'm studying, one of the the givens, one of the presumptions at the time, whoever was organizing this, it, the way the system works is it's a civilizing plan on one level. It's trying to teach us skills that are required to transform us from hunter-gatherers into farmers. And there are a whole set of different skills we need to be able to do that. For one thing, we need working calendars so that we can predict the seasons of the year. And we need uh, to be able to make implements of agriculture out of metal, which we didn't know how to do. And we need to know how to plow fields. We know how to, uh, incidentally, you have to know how to do things like weaving cloth to make, so you can make clothing and things like that. Okay. Um, so on one level, the system is a civilizing plan, but whoever put it together realized that as they're teaching one thing, they could actually be, they could multiply the effect if they taught more than one thing at the same time. And so they, um, connected the civilizing plan to concepts of creation. And every skill they taught in the civilizing plan relates to a concept of how creation happens. So the way the Dogen weave their cloth relates to the way um, some aspect of how matter forms. And the way they build their aligned shrine recreates certain processes of creation. The way they plow a field recreates certain processes. And the idea was that the presumption was you were going to have stability of culture, and that way, as people grow up in this culture, everything around them is going to remind them of these teachings and orient them towards the teachings. You have a society that's going to maintain this information, and it worked in Dogen, in the Dogen culture, and the Buddhist culture, and really in the Egyptian culture for three thousand years. This system held together. It seems very in tune with nature too, then. Yes. Now, in China, what happened was they weren't expecting for there to be cultural instability. And so they didn't have the, the stable structures of you know, 
stable cities and stable regions, uh, regional governments and things like that to hold this stuff together. And so they had to sort of punt. Uh, one of the things they did was, okay, um, one huge advantage that I've had in these studies is that every term of this cosmology, every, every word that defines something carries multiple meanings, at least two meanings, many times more than two meanings. And those meanings are disconnected from one another in such a way that if you know the first meaning, you can't reasonably guess the second meaning just by knowing the first one. So because you have these multiple meanings, I can go from language to language or from culture to culture and positively correlate things because I find the same meanings grouped together in the various cultures. And then you have a positive lock on this stuff. Well, what they did in China was as things started becoming unstable um, uh, socially, they took this information that was supposed to be the knowledge of the priests, secret knowledge of the priests, and they wrote little stories. They wrote myths that incorporated the multiple meanings of those words. And so in China, you have mythical emperors um, who everybody knows about through these myths. There's a myth that talks about an emperor, what his name was, and where he was born and where he traveled and what he did and what civilizing skill he brought and what he's remembered for having done socially. And all of those attributes of the emperor represent multiple meanings of the term that his name represents. Okay, so this happens in myths in various cultures, but it usually happens at a point of instability. It's like the default position of the priest was when they realize we're not, no longer going to be able, to be able to pass this down the way we were supposed to do it in a controlled way, we're going to, um, in a controlled private way, instead we're going to do it in a secret public way. We're going to teach everyone these stories, and if they can remember the stories, then they will, without realizing it, pass these groupings of meanings down intact within, the, within that story. And so the story, the story of uh, Moses and the Exodus from Egypt has attributes like that. And the story of Adam and Eve has attributes like that. Noah's um, Ark. And Noah's Ark, yes, also. Actually, the word, uh, the word for waves or water with the Maori in New Zealand is Noah. This is a cosmological term. Huh. The word ark is a term that... that is applied to this alliance shrine that represents stages of creation. And the pairings of the animals are symbolic of matter as it emerges in pairs. Or it's also symbolic of biological re reproduction where um, an egg divides in two and then those divide in two and those divide in two. I thought Ark was act of random kindness. Oh, <laughs> it's that too. <laughs> How you change the world, buddy. According to heaven almighty. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, not, just according, not just according to him. You know, all you have to do is greet someone nicely in the morning, and you never know how far that'll spread. Or you can kick the dog when you get up, and you never know how far that'll spread. Yeah, I mean, realistically, that's how it works. I mean, that's kind of like, uh, who are we talking to before? We're kind of comparing things to how, like, racism kind of dissolved in, in America and in the South, you know, it didn't just stop, you know, like one day it's like, okay, boom, we're not racist anymore. You know, it's slowly, you know, this guy stopped being a dick and then that guy stopped. And then, you know, slowly over just 
certain people deciding not to be a dink anymore, eventually, you know, it got, well, some places it's probably still pretty fucked up, but overall, I think it's a lot better. It's a whole lot better if you don't consider political parties. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's, no, it's back a, to that be the change you want to see in the world, like be the change yourself that you want to yeah, see. Yeah, exactly. On, on the level of individuals, I think there's been a huge amount of progress made. I think that most people in most societies want the best for other people. I agree. I agree. It's just with all the fear porn out there. There's no people, money in that. People just think, yeah, people... <laughs> But but getting other people to think that way is difficult. Not that I'm trying, but people just don't want to believe that. They're like, oh, it's nasty out there. There's tons of crime and murder and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, really? It's not like that, I don't think. Uh, my wife, Risa, points out that um, the horrible things you hear on the nightly news are only there because they're unusual. If you stopped hearing about the axe murderers, it would be because they had become so commonplace that it wasn't worth reporting them anymore. It's only because they're unusual that you hear about it. And you have to keep things in perspective and understand that all the horrible things you're hearing are at the tip of the iceberg, not the iceberg. Uh, that's a good point. I like the way. It's a good way to look at it. Most of the iceberg is under the water. <laughs> yes. Whatever What's left? Yeah, yeah. yeah more, and more, of, more and more of the iceberg is underwater. Under, under <laughs> Noah. <laughs> So what are, what are you um what are you going to do after you finish these uh, next couple of books that you talked about to us? Okay, do you have let's any see. other so, uh, ideas? Because I, okay, I so I have you could, um, you could get your foot into all kinds of pools of water here. Yeah, there are, there are lots of sort of back burner ideas that are 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 possibilities in the future. But lately, the last couple of books have sort of presented themselves to me when I didn't really. Well, actually, they sort of all have. Uh, the first book I didn't really mean to write. I was just keeping notes for myself and trying to keep them organized and finally realized I had enough information organized in a, in a way that I could self-publish it, and I did. And then John Anthony West helped me find a – he took it to a publishing fair in New York City and personally shopped publishers until he found Inner Traditions, uh, and I've been working with them since. Um, the last couple of books have sort of been the same way that – I'm at a point where I, I'm thinking about what I might want to write next, and then the, the subject presents itself. Somebody writes, asks the right question, or um, this game of charades turns up the right word, and the right um, piece falls into place, and suddenly you know, 20 years worth of loose ends pull together in a way that I didn't understand before, and I can write the last two books I've been able to pretty much write out from front to back. Uh, the wow. one coming out in March, Point of Origin, took me about three and a half months to write as opposed to a year and a half for most of the books. Right. The, the new one that's in my computer took six weeks to write. <laughs> it, Next, we'll be having to start calling you Nick Redfern. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, um, th so I have uh, the China book just out. I have Point of Origin coming out in March. I have... The next book, which I'm calling The Overthrown Boat, it's about um, uh, the Great, Great Britain, Britain area, yeah. um, that, that I haven't submitted to a publisher yet. It's, I'm still contemplating whether there's more to be added to it. Right now, the, the manuscript is a little short of what the publisher would really like to see and a little short of what I would normally want to write. Right. And so I'm still pursuing some other um, possible sources that might open up doors to chapters that pertain to what I'm writing about. Um, so, but I expect that'll be out sometime next year. I have uh, my friend Ed Nightingale's book, which I'm co-credited on, is just out now. It's available through Amazon. It's called the Giza Template. Uh, 
Um, that must have just came out. It did just yesterday, as a matter of fact. Oh, because I saw that. I was looking at that his stuff uh, last week, and I couldn't figure out. I was looking for when the Giza Temple came out, and I thought, is this really old? But I couldn't find a date for it. Nope. No, it hasn't. It hadn't happened yet. It, it just out yesterday. You can now order it on Amazon. Um, it's a short book. It's only about uh, 80 pages long, but it's really interesting stuff. Um, he's um, his background is as a, a master woodcarver. Um, he has restored artifacts for the Vatican, among other places. He's had very high end clients that he's done work for, but for the last 20 years, he's spent. Um, conceptually reverse engineering a plan for why the various structures are on the Giza Plateau, where they are, why they're the sizes they are, why the pyramids are at the angles they're at, um, and what the overall plan had been you know, in, in laying this thing out from an architect's point of view. And then, based on that plan, all sorts of really informa in, interesting information that can be derived from the geometry. And then that information that's at the ground level then ties to geometry in the sky of the constellations and so forth and starts to open up information about um, time, about well, our, the, the movement of our um, solar precession system, galaxy, too, right? about precession, yeah, precession too, and about a lot of other really interesting things. Wow. Well, that's perfect so, timing to line up, uh, Ed, yeah, we I suppose. Have, yeah, we should have Ed on. Okay, now there's a, another book called Lost Secrets of the Gods that was out uh, in the last couple of months that I have an essay in. Um, so there are numbers of different things um, happening for me. I'll have an article in New Dawn magazine. Uh, there's doing a special edition on uh, ancient Egypt and Egyptian symbols uh, that will happen in the next few months. Um, after that, what I had intended to write before I got sort of diverted off onto Great Britain was I was getting prepared to write about the Maori in New Zealand because their cosmological system is all the same stuff. And I'm at, I'm at the point now where I have enough of an overview that I can sit down with a dictionary of a culture I've never studied before and pretty much tell from their dictionary whether it's going to be the same stuff or not and how, it's going to, how, how well it's going to tie out. Um, so the the Maori is the next piece of it. I want to try to to work my way to um, to talking about Polynesia and uh, Australia, things like that, and try to figure out how those things tie in. Uh, and there are lots of other offshoot um, issues that have come up in the other books that I could pursue if I wanted to. So I don't think there'll be a shortage of things to write about over the next yeah. few years. Didn't something new come out lately that was just saying that we all come from Australia? Uh, yeah, there, there, the over the years, or? over the years, there have been lots of different perspectives on on where people came from, and one of the perspectives is that Australia is the remnant of this Mu continent, this Mu civilization, uh, Mu or Lemuria, uh, from the era of Atlantis, um, pre Ice Age. Um, that's its own challenge. I was talking about how difficult it is to tie things in China back to 3000 BC without writing uh, to rely on, yeah, without yeah. text to rely on. Well, okay, that China book prepared me to talk about things at 10,000 BC because you, now you're another 7,000 years before any written text. You need firm techniques for how to link these things together. But now you bump up against the end of the Ice Age. If you want to now extend that over to the beginning of the Ice Age, it's going to take 
another leap of figuring out what are you going to hang interpretations on that has any credibility to it. Yeah, um, yeah. Anybody can say any, anything they want to about before the Ice Age. And uh, the trick is how do you demonstrate that it's really right? Yeah, that'll be a challenge. I'd love to hear. I'd love to have some discoveries happen, though, about uh, kind of proving Lemur and Atlantis, and get your scuba gear on, baby. Well, there's got to the be lots way. of underwater shit, eh? Yeah, there's tons. I mean, if we're gonna find more and more, the problem is we just can't go down there. Like, you know, like three, four hundred feet is already borderline for a person. I'm pretty sure. Mm. Right, and then you also end up with um, disputes about whether any particular formation is natural or not. Right. I mean, there, are, there, are, there are formations off of Japan that uh, Robert Schock, in his professional opinion, sees as being natural, even though they look man-made. Um, yeah, and he, dis- and he sort of disagrees with some people that are saying that they, that they are man-made. That's interesting. Right, and so you get in those kinds of debates, and um, that's one thing when it's an opinion being offered up by somebody you don't have any connection to, but uh, more and more often I'm getting into situations where you know two people that I very highly respect end up on opposite sides <laughs> of an issue. <laughs> that's kind that's of a good of sign, fun. though, in a way. Well, it is. Uh, in the la- last couple of books I've been writing, there have probably been a half a dozen situations where some key interpretation I'm making flies in the face of something my friend John Anthony West believes firmly to be true. Uh-huh. And I know that he's a careful researcher. I know that, but he doesn't say things lightly. And what I've learned to do in those situations is to dig deeper. And when I do dig deeper, I what I've invariably come up with is a way to look at the issue that is an umbrella over both perspectives. Hmm. Um, that happened in terms of Gobekli Tepe. There's a, there are symbols there. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the the megalith that has the three, what they called, uh, um, I think they called them the three handbags. It looks like three hemispheres sitting on top of three squares. These are carved into one of the megaliths. They're side by side with each other. Yeah, I think and we were my, just looking at a picture of that earlier. Well, yeah. my outlook was that that represent, those three together represented the concept of a temple because there's a tradition in Buddhism when you're talking about concepts of ascension that overtly says that, and there are also some um, very archaic um, um, temple forms called chaityas that, um, where it was understood that three domes or three hemispheres represents the concept of a temple. Well, John was saying that that can't be true. It represents the concept of a house. This says house. It doesn't say temple. So I spent a couple of weeks trying to find coherent references that demonstrated that cultures saw it both ways. The same term they used to represent a temple also represented the concept of a house and that the temple itself is seen as a house that reconciles these two dimensions together. There's a a feminine principle that's associated with the non-material side and there's a masculine principle that is associated with the material side and this dome which reconciles above and below, reconciles those two principles. It's the house that holds the reconciliation of those things, and that's why it's the temple. Huh. Interesting. So, it's so that I, in, in case after case with him, about a half a dozen times over a period of a year and a half, we ended up in situations like that where we had to find a way to, to be able to reconcile our points of view with each other. And he was pretty open to that after? Oh, yeah. I mean, he is. Um, I mean, he... 
he firmly holds his de- ground when he knows he's right about something. Um, that uh, he's very reluctant to let go of something that he's know- he knows is right because he's researched these things. He knows them. And he's, he's not saying it lightly. So it, it takes some extra effort to be able to convince him that there's another way of looking at it. And that's easier to do if you can, if you can show that that new way of looking at it is an umbrella over what he thinks and what I think. Yeah. yeah. So, so do you do this full time or do you still have, do you still work in computer business and stuff like that? Um, I'm an independent software guy uh, for businesses. I work on um, a line of business computers called the iSeries. This is a, a, a family of business computers that is uh, sort of hanging on by its by its teeth. It's been around for um, several decades now. Um, it's a workhorse computer for businesses. Uh, very easy to program and very easy to maintain, very inexpensive to maintain. Um, so I still have a certain number of software clients that I, I see on sort of an, uh, an as-needed basis. And so I, uh, this week, there, there hasn't been a morning that I haven't been at a client doing software work. Um, uh, Monday morning, I'll be out again doing software work for one of the clients. But any time that I do have that's not being taken up with that, I, c- I can devote to book work or to, to family obligations and things like that. Yeah, well, that's but good. I get, I get a fair, ma- fair amount of time to, uh, to do it. The software, both the software work and the book work left me um, really ample time to be a dad to my kids and a, a husband and my wife and to feel like I have a life. Um, I've been very, very lucky to not have been under the thumb of of a job in the same way that a lot of other people have been. Yeah, that's good. You can tell with the, all the research you've done, you must have had to put a lot of time into that. Yeah, and it it, it gets easier as we go along, but um, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, where, whereas three, three or four books ago, I might have had one or two dictionaries to check when I'm researching something, a certain concept. Now I may have a dozen I need to check. So it... It gets easier to find things, but harder, a broader set of things I'm trying to reconcile. Huh. So are you speaking at any conferences coming up at all? Um, right now, let's see. I think I'm, I'm done with conferences for the moment. Most of those happen in the fall, and we're, pa- we're past most of them. Um, I'm hoping that the uh, Great Britain book will um, eventually turn into some invitations to go there for, for conferences because this book in its own way is – as or more radical as the point of origin book that ties the cultures together to the Gobekli Tepe era. It um, opens up a whole new viewpoint on, on the way things work. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, with, with symbols and, and traditions in ancient Egypt. There's a real mix of things that make it hard to understand what was going on. I mean, you've got uh, it uh, it's really hard to explain what the you know, the mix of symbols are and the mix of words are. It's uh, it's like a jumble. As you have five different words that mean the same thing that don't seem to have bear any relationship whatsoever to each other. How did they get five different ways of pronouncing this word or five different words that meant the same thing? Uh-huh. Um, I'm now starting to understand that there was an original set of influences at 10,000 BC that um, are timed to coincide pretty much with the the Sphinx era. Okay, and these influences can pass down through a cult in India, uh, ancestral to the Vedic and the Buddhist and the Hindu traditions. Okay, and um, that influence there was a direct line of influence from that 
into ancient Egypt at Sphinx time, but there was a second set of influences that came out of India into Elephantine around 4000 BC. And Elephantine? Elephantine is uh, one of two sites in ancient Egypt that have credible histories that go um, far beyond, far earlier than dynastic Egypt. Okay. Elephantine is a little island at the uh, about. It's at the first waterfall or cataract of the Nile River. It's it used to be the southern boundary of Egypt, and then eventually uh, the boundary got moved, so it was no longer right at the boundary. Okay. But it's um, it's fairly far uh, south along the Nile River. It's down near Aswan yeah. and places like that. Okay, so there's a set of influences there that came in that looked to me as if they came in from India. Um, then, that's around 4000 BC. Then, at 3200 BC, there's another set of influences that are related to the same teachers from 10,000 BC, but it's as if they made a second try. It's as, it's as if the first attempt at, at lifting us up to a civilized status didn't really take or didn't take as well as they wanted. And so, suddenly things get reformulated. Um, what started out as a matriarchal tradition with mother goddesses primarily suddenly became a patriarchal tradition and now the emphasis was on creator gods instead of mother goddesses. Mm. And there are all sorts of flips in symbolism and changes in the way language work and changes in what symbols represent and how uh, phonetic values are assigned to which symbols and things like that. And it doesn't just happen in Egypt, but it happens across numerous cultures at the same time. And, and so, like, all, God, does it make its way up to Great Britain? Uh, actually, it does. But the interesting thing is that that was my perspective: is that it makes its way up to Great Britain. But as I researched it, I realized that my outlook wasn't right. It didn't make its way up to Great Britain. It was reorganized in Great Britain, and it made its way back to Egypt from Great Britain. Huh. That's, that's so. That's kind of mind-blowing. That's, that's a pretty heretical perspective to have, but I can defend it. And the next book that will be coming out, the book I'm calling Overthrown Boat, lays that out, how that works and how, how you can demonstrate that it's right. And along the, pro, along the way, what it's using for um, – part of what it's using for evidence are the ancient, ancient references in the Egyptian Book of the Dead – Ancient references that are given by very early Greek philosophers and poets. And um, you end up sort of second-handedly being able to demonstrate that what these, these Greek writers were saying is absolutely correct, especially when it comes to geographic knowledge. When, it, when they say we're talking about a place that's located – in a specific position, say like the, when, the, uh, when Plato was talking about Atlantis, um, I now have enough confidence in these Greek writers to say if I were looking for Atlantis, I would follow as closely to the letter as I could what Plato told us because all these other Greek writers seem to be absolutely on the money when they tell us things that involve geography. Hmm. That, <laughs> that's kind of mind-blowing. So, so then are we saying that Great Britain uh, at some point manipulated manipulated uh, the symbology symbolism no, what happened was that the same group 
that presented the original cosmology and the original civilizing planet 10,000 BC, which the Egyptians call the first time and the Buddhists yeah. call the okay, they're also, the Buddhists also refer to it as the first time. If you think about it, that term first time implies that there was more than one attempt. Otherwise, they would just call it the time. Okay. So, yeah, right, right. So the other attempt happened not down there in the Fertile Crescent or whatever, but more up, up north a bit. And they, they, they regrouped themselves. What, at 10,000 BC, what you have are a number of different high mountaintop sanctuaries that seem specialized in what they taught. At Gobekli Tepe, they seem to have been primarily teaching stone working skills, quarrying and stone working. Um, you get to places like Cattle uh, Hayek. It, it looks to me as if they might have been teaching um, weaving skills there. Huh. Uh, there are Egyptian words that relate, Egyptian names that relate to these archaic sanctuaries, and there are enough different Egyptian names that it makes it look as if there were multiple high mountaintop sanctuaries like Gobekli Tepe in about that same era. And each one had a counterpart in ancient Egypt. Uh, the, um, there's a, a temple in Memphis in Egypt that's a counterpart to Gobekli Tepe in terms of naming conventions. The names suggest that they were the same. Um, and so um, there's this sort of parallelism here, and there's, uh, there are ways that these archaic names were put together that, that tell us certain things about the, the sanctuaries. Okay, so at 10,000 BC, you have these high mountaintop sanctuaries, which were, I think, located there partly because of high ocean levels, partly because it was a safe place for whoever was instructing us. It was a safe haven for those people who were instructing us. At 3000 BC, they seem to have regrouped and they consolidated what had previously been these you know, multiple sanctuaries into a single sanctuary that was a training ground for, for multiple different cultures all around the world, around 3200 BC. And then, about 100 years later, about 3100 BC, suddenly you have coherent kingships established in the four corners of the earth in China, in Egypt, in Great Britain, and in South America, all based on systems of agriculture, name, named using naming conventions that have meaning, coherent meaning in relation to each other. They, you, looking at the Egyptian words, you can there are multiple levels on which you can say, this was named this for a reason, and it relates to these other, the names of these other sites for a reason. Wow, that can't be a coincidence. Yeah, That's well, crazy. Yeah, you see the same sort of uh, high-altitude cities in South America, too. That's right. The yeah, earliest ones. I think some of them they try and, try and attribute to the Incas, but, I mean, a lot of them you can see a clear distinction in where the Incas took over or built on top of or, you know. Right. That's right. And those, those earliest sites were, were high mountaintop sites. Um, so at 3200 B.C., it looks like what we have in the British Isles is a discrete training ground whose purpose was to train priests and essentially ruling class people, kings. Oh. The people who, people who are going to be installed as established kingships in Egypt and in China, in Great Britain, and in um, South America all at the same moment. Wow, that's crazy. That yeah. That's pretty... Yeah, that's gonna 
<laughs> cause some waves probably. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that before. So no, I, this, I, I was. It took me totally by surprise because I was looking at it the other way. But there were certain certain facts that kept certain contradictions I kept coming upon where the form that I thought was earlier had differences from the form I thought was later, but but couldn't have because the later form was more complete than the earlier form. Wow. And then does you know, that like, also? Sorry, go ahead. Keep going. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, th- does that also get into Barry Fitzgerald's work then too? Like that, there must be some crazy yes, correlations yes. there. It does. The part of what he and I connected uh, with at Paradigm were some experiences he had had in the British Isles that he was having a hard time making sense of, <laughs> but that are explained in the archaic tradition that I study. Wow. And so I was hoping to put him onto some of the sources I'd been working with because I thought there was a good chance that they were going to give him a context for what he'd experienced. Yeah, and also possibly a uh, a process for the discrete training ground. Right, like and access, I don't think access I, like maybe <clears throat> the way they were accessing these other dimensions through these portals in ancient Ireland. Uh, has That's like the birthplace of the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, there are a whole set of things that Dogen tell us are true that when you put it in the, in the context of what you find in, in Great Britain, you can demonstrate was was just the way they said it was. Um, okay, there are – there's a, a, a group of sites I'm working with in, in the British Isles where – the researchers don't understand where the settlers were there came from. They don't understand why their language was the way it was. They didn't understand why their architecture was the way it was. They didn't understand um, things about pottery and things like that. Um, they they had no have no context to be able to understand what they're seeing. They know it's there, but it's out of place, and they can't they can't figure out where it might have come from. Well, you start with the language of that group. And you start making comparisons to Egyptian words and to Dogen words, and it's all the same stuff. You take the architectural forms and compare it to Dogen architectural forms, it's all the same stuff. Uh, the Dogen, you see, in my, from my perspective, the Dogen were Egyptian at 3200 BC. Right. And so my, my outlook was, the question that I had been asked was whether I thought there could have been Egyptian influences at a certain locale in the, in the British Isles, at thirty-two, you know, at a particular site, I did some research and found out the site dated from thirty-two hundred BC, and I thought, well, if there had been Egyptian influences, I should see commonalities with the Dogon because the Dogon have preserved things very well, and their culture looks a lot like things must have looked in Egypt at thirty-two hundred BC. We should be able to line it up a little bit. What I found was there weren't just commonalities; it was all the same stuff. And the architectural forms that I was coming across in Great Britain not only were a match for the forms the Dogen were using, but there's cosmology associated with the Dogen forms. It's the way it is for a reason, the, like the way they build their house. There's a particular structure to their house that has a rationale behind it. And so now you can go to the architectural form in, in Great Britain line up the different pieces of the structures and show they're the same, and then line up the words that describe the 
pieces of the structure. You know, the um, here's how they describe the hearth, and here's the, here's the word they use to describe the hearth, and here's the the word they use to describe the bedroom area, and here's the word they describe the doorway, and so forth, and line up those concepts with the Dogen words and the Dogen concepts, and you get this match that you really can't argue against because it connects too many ways. You've got an entire village that looks for all the world like a Dogen village and includes all of the key features the Dogen village would have had. But in a couple of cases, there are pieces missing in the Dogen version of it that are included in the Great Britain version of it. And so my first outlook was, isn't that amazing that the people in Great Britain added this piece they needed that the Dogen didn't? But they added it in a way that was consistent with the cosmology. How did they think to do that? You know, they followed the rationale. They extended the rationale so that the new piece they added was an extension of the cosmology that was describing. And then it occurred to me, that's not what happened. It was the other way around. The complete piece is in Great Britain. The Dogen went to where they went, and they no longer needed pieces of it, and they removed the piece they didn't need. Yeah, that is so crazy, there, and that's coming. Are, go ahead. So that, yeah, that I don't know when that's coming out. That that right now is sitting in my computer. <clears throat> right, right. And um, yeah, the my publisher knows about it. Um, I'm the stage I'm at right now is uh, trying to make some choices about whether I'm going to try to extend the book to uh, uh, to include a couple of more chapters. Right. And. Um, whether I'm going to put any restrictions on what I want the book called. Uh, the book Point of Origin, the way the material fell out, it fell out with the name attached to the material. This is hard to explain, but it's a part of this game of charades. The first piece I had was the name of the book, and all the material fell out because of the name. And so publishers like the the, the key... Um, feature the publisher has for control for posturing a book in the marketplace is the name of the title of the book, uh-huh. and so they try to reserve the right to name the book themselves. But in this case, point of origin, I needed the name to be point of origin. Not only did it come with the material, but every source I started um, justifying things against used that same phrase to describe this is the point of origin of the universe, and this is the point of origin of. Uh, of of language, and this is the point of origin of agriculture, and this is the point of origin of something else, and all of these different authors I was using as my sources kept using that phrase, point of origin, point of origin, point of origin. So as a precondition of the submission, I insisted the name of the book had, the major title had to be point of origin. They could call the subtitle anything they- yet, yet you could call the other book about Great Britain point of origin in a way. And there was sort of a back and forth. Uh, I had a- Hello? How's your connection there, Darren? Looks like we have oh. a problem. Yeah, it looks like we have a problem. <laughs> the connection. Uh, the publisher probably will not look on the name Overthrown Boat as being something they want to use. And I have to decide how attached I am to it. Uh, it links symbolically in a lot of ways to the material. So that's a choice I have to make. So sometime in the next few months, I'll probably be submitting that um, 
It's funny, you know, I, I, I swear I remember in the, the first Paradigm Symposium, John Ward's presentation having something to do with him tracing symbology yeah. back and forth between Egypt yeah. and England. Well, it was in those, it was in yes. the valley that he was studying and it was, it was brought up to that town in England. I can't remember the town of Lincolnshire or something like that. Heard of Ford. Yes. Heard, okay. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's not, that's not the, that's not the weird part, guys. The weird part is this tradition I trace out of India into Egypt appears in India in two locales at 4,000 BC and only two locales. One of them is Elephantine. The other one is Gebel El Silsila, which oh. is the site that John Ward and Maria Nilsson have exclusive rights to for the next 40 years. Now, what wow. are the chances of that? Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> huh. So John's getting the Lots cosmic game planned on him, too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, I, I do have to mention one thing cause it's nagging me and I, I'm sure it's, it's, well, I'm not sure, but it's probably got nothing to do with what you're working on. But do you remember Darren, we did that uh, interview with those guys from Rendlesham and one of the guys had that download of yes. that binary code and there was something about a site off of Great Britain. I thought an underground, like a site that's now, I don't know, in the, in the Atlantic somewhere, um, um, I vaguely recall that too. I know Rendlesham. There, there is a lot of controversy over what happened. Uh, clearly, something happened in the woods there. Yeah. Uh, but there are conflicting stories as to what that was, and uh, either take the official viewpoint on it or you take the unofficial one. My my inclination is to to consider the unofficial one. Yeah. The the, the part that interests me about about your work in that though is the coordinates. I think it was coordinates that were given that are very, very close to Great Britain, and I can't remember the name of what it's supposed to be or whatever, but uh, keep that in the back of your head. I will, definitely, because that, that could connect. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> As the cosmic game is being played. Yes. So anyway, there's lot, lots and lots of stuff going on. I feel very lucky to have been uh, involved in all this stuff. I have been very fortunate to to have found the, an excellent entry point with the Dogen that sort of led me by the hand all the other stuff. And um, uh, <laughs> well, well, now that that's kind of your your pillar, right? Your uh, the Dogon has become your pillar too, and your comparative uh, text in a way. It it is. Uh, there's another piece that's actually as significant, um, and that's the way the Egyptian words work. Um, I had said that cosmology preceded writing. Now, the way the cosmology works is the Dogon priests say they are not capable of talking about a concept of creation without also drawing it. And so most of these cosmological concepts have a related drawing. And those drawings often look like certain Egyptian hieroglyphs. Hmm. Now, a good example of that is the sun glyph, the circle with the dot in the middle of that. Okay, In the cosmology, there are reasons to associate that circle with the dot with the concept of a day because it's essentially a sundial, with the concept of the sun, because the shape is derived from movements of the sun, and the concepts of seasons and periods of time, because they use that figure to track seasons of the year. Now, you get to Egyptian hieroglyphic language, the sun glyph, the circle with the dot, means those same things. It stands for the concept of a day, it represents periods of time, and it represents the sun. Same thing in China. The same sun glyph represents the same concept. Okay? So it looked to me as if 
whoever put the language, written language together had adopted wholesale these some of these cosmological drawings to use in the words. And that made me think, maybe these drawings represent concepts. And I started looking at Egyptian words that way. If I'd had perfect knowledge, I would have started with the word for week, written with two glyphs, the sun glyph, which represents the concept of a day, and the Egyptian number 10, which is an upside-down U. I looked at that word, and I saw that it said 10 days, and I did some research and discovered the Egyptians had a 10-day week. Hmm. In other words, the symbols of the word told me what the word meant, explained to me what it meant. And I didn't know before I read the word that they had a 10-day week. In China, the word for week works the same way, written with the sun glyph and the Chinese number 10, and they had a 10-day week. It's fundamentally a similar process. Okay, it turns out all the Egyptian words work that way. That if you know the right concept to associate with the glyph, you can create a symbolic sentence that tells you what the word means. Now, the next step is that there are certain words that attach another glyph to the end of that symbolic sentence that isn't pronounced. And those words, the symbolic sentence not only defines the word, it also defines the meaning of that trailing glyph. And so now you can lay out a long list of Egyptian hieroglyphs and what they mean based on the authority of their own language. Huh. So anytime I have a concept I don't fully understand, I want to learn more about, the first thing I do is I pick up an Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary and I look up all the words that relate to that concept and see what the glyphs tell me about what they thought it meant. And that gives me a starting point to compare to Buddhism and to compare to the Dogen and to compare to other cultures to see, see now, did they see it the same way or did they see it a different way? Fascinating. So you've got the... And usually it's the same. Usually it's the same. And, and when it is the same, then I'm on absolutely firm ground in stepping forward and saying, here's what I think this concept represents. Because I've got a sense, rather than a dictionary, I've got an encyclopedia. And so it's as if you could go to an encyclopedia or go to Google or go to dictionary.com and look up a word and have it explain to you what the word means. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. So, so Laird, we better uh, <clears throat> start wrapping it up here. Is there anything else you want to talk, uh, tell everybody? Uh, let's see. Uh, not too much. Um, I'm trying to keep these, these books um, simple. One of the things that people complain about to me is uh, <laughs> with series of books is that the farther into the series you go, the more you're rereading material you've read before because the author's trying to catch you up to speed with the rest of the series. Right, right. Well, I've been trying not to do that with the most recent books. I've been trying to only repeat the information the reader needs. Um, as well, a context, yeah. As a context. Or maybe I'll repeat it, but I won't repeat the justification for it. So if I have a chapter of justification in the previous book, I'll summarize that quickly for the reader so they know what I'm talking about. But if they want more than that, they can go back to the, you know, one of the other books to, to track that back. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. Where can our listeners track you down? Are you on the Facebook? Okay, well, um, my publisher site is, uh, I, there are a couple of different publisher sites for me. There's www.innertraditions.com. I have an author page, Laird Scranton, there. Yep. There's also a page for me on Simon & Schuster's website, www.simonandschuster.com. Okay. Okay, those have all my books. All my books are on uh, Amazon and places like that. There is a LairdScranton.com that's actually a fan site, 
and the contact tab there will, you know, whatever person writes into that will get to me and I do answer those. Um, so it's a way to reach me and it's actually a, a pretty well maintained site, but it's not really my site. Okay. Um, and I'm on Facebook. People can friend me on Facebook or message me on, on Facebook or whatever. Um, I try to answer questions. I try to respond to comments, things like that. How about the Twitter? Uh, Twitter I'm not doing okay. at the moment. Uh, my wife and I joke that we are um, neo-Amish. <laughs> Okay. The the Amish, as you remember, gave up on technology sometime before 1890. We gave up around 1990. <laughs> so, uh, Laird, this has been like mind blowing chat. I mean, honestly, it's one of those ones where this is why we love doing the show. Is I get to learn new things and and have the great conversations with people in their in their field. So we really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for taking so much time with me. And uh, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. Yeah, and we'll see you uh, next yeah, year's Paradigm. Yeah, hopefully we'll see you again in uh, next October. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be there one way or the other. Okay, well, say hi to uh, say hi to your lovely wife for us. I definitely will. She's probably listening. So. All right. <laughs> Thanks okay. a lot. Thanks. Have, that was great. Have a nice night. And welcome back to the Grand America Show. That was our chat with Laird Scranton. Yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, it was kind of mind blowing, actually. I can't wait till his new book comes out. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, to see him too. I didn't know, like, to be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about Laird until this symposium. Yeah, it was when I really uh, got to know him. So, well, what I think is fascinating is I've been to all three of his uh, chats at all three Paradigm symposiums, and they've all been quite different. You know, he's he's got such a wide range of uh, research that he can do presentations on all different stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was a, it. Was a good one for sure. I can't wait to to talk to him again next year. Sit down and uh, and shoot the shit out paradigm. Can't wait for his new book. Yeah, you rated that we synchronicity could, pretty high of his. Yeah, he's got our highest ever synchronicity. No, higher than Dean Raiden too. Yeah, way the fuck higher than Dean fucking Raiden. Shh. Sorry. Not to be like that. That was a big one. Oh, it was Dean Raiden. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Remember, no. it wasn't big. It was like an eight something, eight point eight or something. We should have Dean on to tell us about that himself. Is he, is he on our list? I think Sorry. so. Anyways. What did we just listen to? We just listened to the audio yeah, of it last yeah, time, right? Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. No, Laird is higher. Anyways, I want to thank Laird uh, a lot for coming on, spending such a, a couple hours with us. Yeah, for sure. We could probably finagle that book from Inner Traditions, I bet. Yeah. Have them on again. Hey, John. Yeah, hey, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no big thanks to Laird for coming on. Um, who's up next? Who's being Don't released say. next? Uh, yeah. We have a Bitcoin episode with Jim Van Deventer. Old uh, Van Deventer, eh? 
Uh, yeah, I think we're going to pair that up with well, we got we got to get Pat O on to talk about his movie and Brad Burge. We got to get Brad Burge. I think we're going to talk to him again early next week for he's a from Maps, right? Yeah, uh, multi yeah. Uh, yeah. Multidisciplinary, yeah. something for psychedelic <laughs> studies. studies or something. Anyway, uh, he came on before and uh, had agreed to come on for like every 20 minutes, every quarter or something like that and talk to us about where they're at with their psychedelic research. Uh, so he's going to pop on in that episode. Uh, there was someone else, wasn't there? Justin. Yeah, Justin. going to pop on, talk about the money bomb, talk about the newsletter a little bit, which is looking fantastic. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Uh, if you're not signed up for the newsletter, sign up now, grammarica.ca slash news. Um, Leave a voicemail from the homepage. If you are signed up, sign up your friends and shit. Like, all you have to do is pop in someone's name and their email address. So really, you could sit there, you're bored at work, sign up fucking... Really? Sign up your whole address book. Really? Yeah, you can sign up anyway. Oh, I'm going to get on that. Well, I don't know. If, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, sign up your friends. Well, instead of emailing it and saying to other people sign up, like just I did with up. my mom and my sister, they probably haven't signed up. It'll just sign them up my, uh, yeah, myself. Yeah, exactly. So I already that's signed a good up. Idea. Sign up your friends. Uh, so uh, I think that's about it till next week. Yeah, spam, spam Gram. Yeah, spam Gram. Graham at grammerica.com. Um, send me your uh, G's, your G Graham. What, your, no, you don't have to. Your G adjectives. Would it be an adjective or an adverb? Adjective. Is you're a noun, right? Yeah. To describe a noun, grabs a noun. G adjectives, and uh, support the support the show. Grammarica.ca slash money bomb. I've got one for you. We got godly. Yeah, godly. Hey, okay. I'll I'll fucking throw that in. I'll put that on the list. <laughs> I'll put that on the list and see when you earn it. Um, yeah, well, it's pretty funny. We were actually talking about in this show how we hadn't got a new subscriber in a while, and we actually got a new subscriber during this show. So, yeah, thanks, during Adam. this recording of this show. So, um, yeah, go over there, support the show, grammaric.ca slash moneybomb, review the show, grammaric.ca slash iTunes, uh, check out the show notes. Graham does a great job compiling all the links and Thank uh, you. check out all the music in this episode. Yeah. And if you want to see who's upcoming, go to backstage. Yeah, grammarica.ca slash backstage. Uh, we'll tell you who's coming up in our Mixler feed where you can listen in live, or even if you just want to email us in questions, you can follow us on Twitter at Grimerica. Find us on Facebook, like us there. Oh, we did get some feedback on uh, the... Remember, who was this shitting on the bag of shit on fire and knocking on the door? So I remembered what we used to call it when we were kids. Oh, and I said Nicky Nicky Nine Door? Yeah. You had feedback on that? Yeah, and okay. I said it was fucking. I forgot what it was, but it was knock knock ginger. Knock knock ginger. That's what we used to call it. Yeah, but then I got feedback from someone else who said they called it ding dong ditch. <laughs> oh, I've heard that too. I've heard the ding dong ditch too. <laughs> and then there was another one too, but I can't. I fucking. I can't go back and I, I think it was on YouTube. The other one. Yeah, I think it was on YouTube because that that was a go rightly episode. I think. <laughs> Went to YouTube pretty quick, quicker than most of them end up on YouTube, which is which is ironic. The episode that we were talking about, we even mentioned how who knows when it'll get to YouTube was actually on YouTube within like two weeks. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, wherever you're listening to us, our home base is grammarica.ca. I noticed I found some weird places you can download the show now. I don't understand what you mean. I'll talk to you about it after we're done recording, but yeah, some weird just random places where you can listen to our show. Really? It's like someone's 
like the underground, like the yeah, deep web. Yeah, it's like someone's ripping our MP3s from our YouTube episodes. Really? Because they're MP3 files, is but like, they've got the YouTube names. Is it available YouTube, on like the Silk Road Three? I don't know. <laughs> the YouTube names are, or the YouTube names are always different than the really than the actual names that I name the episodes for our feed, right? Sometimes on the website too, but on our feed for our podcatchers, it's always the same. Yeah. Scramerica talks to this. Scramerica talks to this yeah. person. Nice and clean. And then the show notes, it'll say, it'll elaborate. But on YouTube, just because we basically threw our hat in the YouTube just to be kind of a, as a search engine. So in the title, I'll throw in some keywords. So he's like, you know, Gramerica talks to Randall Carlson about climate change, blah, 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 right? A mm -hmm. couple keywords out of the show notes, I'll paste in there. So I can see that the MP3s have the show, the YouTube names, but they're MP3s again. So someone's cutting them from YouTube. And, but whatever, man. Who cares, really? I really don't care. No, I don't care. Fucking however no. the farther, whatever fucking spreads the word. Yeah. The hegemony. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Next week, we will uh, we'll, uh, welcome a few new countries. I think there's three or four more. Wow. Yeah. Pretty soon, we're going to run out of countries. Yeah. Let's just start making our own. Yeah. Grab America. Yeah.